0: Welcome to the 12th installment of the Polycast Side Series, Evergreen. I'm Canis Albanus,
1: And I'm Daniel Dankuquick. Season 12 of the show consisted of 31 episodes in the annual Christmas special.
0: As with the previous 11 Evergreens, Dan here has selected and ranked the top 10 topics he feels most retain their relevance after the years they've been published.
1: As well, recurring guest co host Candice Albanus here re listened to the entire season to select the 10 most representative moments for the show.
0: Ready up. Number 10 from episode 318, using the shift and enter key combination to bank Civ 6 production, culture, science, is questioned for strategy and suitability.
2: All rise and no fall has civilization reinforces a dangerous myth. So they're like, it wants to solve a problem. The problem, the perpetual growth and... Plague's mini forest games? Ugh.
3: We've already got a bum article, man. In the first paragraph, you know how this is going to go. But okay, Dan, yeah. we'll cover this.
1: <laughs> Just because we're covering it doesn't mean we're covering it because we're going to laud it in any way. <laughs> You're giving it the time of day. but I, yeah, I, all right. I mean, I,
4: I do have something for this. Uh, but
2: <laughs> yeah.
3: Oh, well, yeah, sure. Let's rip into
4: him.
2: <laughs> rip into it.
4: Well, may I?
2: Yeah, yes, let's do it. Go ahead.
4: Okay, so there's something called psychological terms that the article writer is referring to without actually referring to, and it. it's called intrinsic motivation and intrinsic motivation. And explaining in what I'm trying to talk to in the shortest words possible while focusing on the games, extrinsic motivation is what motivates players to be rewarded by making good decisions, and those players will want to make strategies to essentially make bigger numbers than their opponents, rewarding them with victories. While intrinsic motivation focuses more on personal rewards that are set based on what players feel rewarding and not necessarily because it's conducive to a good strategy or bigger numbers. What he seems to be doing in this article is that he's saying that the extrinsic motivator for growth is not accurate, which is True, because Civ is not a real-life model, but he also wants to discourage that intrinsic motivation as well, which is just a way to make a player who likes extrinsic motivators like Yields to want to stop playing the game entirely, and I disagree with him on this. He makes examples for farms should start going bad, or cities should start flooding, or there should be climate changes to wreck the lands. And this just goes into why random events are generally a bad idea for designing 4X games for players driven by extrinsic motivators. There are ways that he refers to how pirates can show up and beat on your empire, but I'm kind of curious what his opinion would be on two things. The first one would be he keeps talking about how the game is stagnant when you get to a certain point in the game, and that is true. But Civ 4 and Warlords 2 does something about that. And when you have technically beaten the game, they just end the game for you. They say, oh, you've beaten the game. You've gotten all this land or you've beaten enough people that everyone is begging for you to stop. And that's one way to do it. Something EU4 does is to kind of rubber band your tech. And if you're ahead of time trying to tech up costs you extra resources if you're lower on the text and you get a discount to do it so that's In one way mind, to keep
3: u four is not very good
4: as an example no no Compared no. To your no other
3: two the expansion aspect of that game is just wild like there's nothing tech can cover at that point
4: but i am just saying that's one way to look at it for trying to rubber band <laughs> it so that it's not stagnant all the time
1: Yeah, or like true runaway stuff I knew that selecting this topic would lead to at least one call of why are we giving this the light of day, as Phil referred to it, and maybe there's some other people on the panel that feel the same way. Part of why I'm giving it the time of day, I want us to talk about it on the show, is some little things. First off, it's Rock, Paper, Shotgun. <laughs> it's a well-known name. But the thing is, there are things that he comments about, and Drew, you kind of touched on it a little bit there and I'm going to quote this one part from the article that sooner or later in every Civ game you'll reach a point where the challenge is gone but there's still a long grind before you reach the point where you win the game and yes that is true yeah I feel like he takes the this is the way it is currently in the game and it shouldn't be in the game I agree to that point But then to go so far as to say that it shouldn't be about the continual rise and getting more and more is better and better, that there should be this decay, and it should mimic real life more. Well, first off, if we want real life, then we'll go play real life. (laughs) This is a game. This is not an historical simulator on top of it, like some other titles that have been mentioned. This is more of an abstraction. It's to be fun. But in order to deal with the issue, it's not going to be fun if your land starts to flood, your cities start to decay, your cities turn into barbarian camps because you had two Dark Ages in a row. (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah. Uh,
3: the problem is there's no well, control over that...
1: this proposed mechanics. So, right. like, you directly screw over
3: extrinsic motivators, and you also directly screw over all the other mechanics just to make arbitrary crap happen that makes the player struggle. I, I want to remove skill as an element in the game.
5: I want to say that I'm probably going to be a little bit more sympathetic to this article than the rest of the panel is. And I think a big part of that is that one of the things that's kind of unfortunate whenever somebody brings up the ideas of like civil wars or climate change or droughts or flooding or whatever, weather events, climate events, things like that, people kind of conflate that with random events. Probably in large part because that was how Civ 4 Beyond the Sword, did it. And that that's system strategy
3: was, games so was not very
5: good. But I think that there is room to talk about the ideas of having system-driven yeah, I events. Say, that's
4: yeah. Because yeah. there, there, there are it.
5: other games that do that very well. And one of the <sighs> best examples that I can think of would be something like a city builder. Right. Where you have a lot of different systems that kind of tug at each other, where in a city builder, you do want to grow. It has that same kind of glorifying of perpetual growth kind of issue that this has where, you know, most city builders, you can't win or whatever by just building a little farming community And being like, all right, that city's good. You know, they expect you to build these giant New York style metropolises. But those games will have different pressures that tug at you in different ways. So, for example, if you stop growing and you stop attracting new people um, moving into your cities, your population is going to age and die. And then you're going to have fewer people in the workforce and your economy is going to suffer. So can't just get to a point where you just sit on your laurels and the city just works for the rest of the game, because there's these little systems that add kind of destabilizing mechanics to everything. And that's one of the things that I think that civilization hasn't quite tried to do yet. And a big part of that is because those sorts of things are more on the simulationist side of gaming. That's probably more appropriate for games like Europa Universalis and, you know, maybe even Total War, stuff like that. But I don't want to just automatically dismiss such mechanics as not being able to fit within Civ. Things like cities turning into barbarians or civil wars, those things are not fun because Civ does have this perpetual growth model where anything that sets you back kind of almost by definition puts all the other opponents that far ahead of you you never ever want to lose anything in Civ and a big part of that is because the game is all about constantly growing if you had systems in place where you had to do a more careful job of managing the resources because they might expire or get exhausted or something like that where there might actually be advantages to maybe even losing territory because you get a more compact empire that's easier to manage and then that allows you to then and i think this is kind of what they wanted to do with the dark ages but it doesn't quite work like, this
4: way i think what it actually is and we saw it in civ 5 and we saw it in civ 6 is the happiness in civ 5 and the amenities in civ 6 you started referring to climate change and this is just a system you know i know you're not referring to specific but like you could have a slider in your city or something doing that if you keep growing too industrious, too fast. But we already have that. That's called a happiness system, and that was the amenity system, really. True, but opinion. the
5: difference between having something like, again, going back to the example of climate change, is that that would affect everybody in the game, not just you. So if there's you know, a worldwide or continent-wide drought, that would not only affect your civilization, but it would also affect your neighboring civilizations as well. So it's not just a matter of I don't have enough amenities, so I can't grow. It's everybody in this area of the map doesn't have enough resources or food, so none of them can grow. We're all dealing with the same problems, and maybe we even at this point want to cooperate with each other to overcome that problem where we're sharing food and we're sharing water and stuff like that. But right now in Civ, those things aren't really resources that you ever trade. You can't ship bushels of wheat to your neighbor to help their cities grow.
3: You can't Why would send you want to though? You would have to have a different model of game. Like, this cannot work right. in a Forex because you don't want your opponent to get better. Like, we are talking a major different type of game at this stage. And All that's right. the Possibly. problem with yes. that so often happens right. with these kinds of mechanics. It's a misalignment of incentives and also misalignment with the gameplay in general. If you have mechanics, like, around climate change, that can work in context. But you need meaningful choice with it in the context of your victory condition. And that's where, like, a game like Civ 4 completely failed. Yes, it Correct. affected everybody. Yes. but it really didn't have any impact on the outcome of the game, except for maybe making it happen slightly slower because everyone got less yields. So like, what's the point then?
6: Well, I, was, I agree. With are you suggesting Civ
3: IV did it wrong? But I, I, the point
5: that I'm you, just trying to make is that I think if you developed a system where if the entire game was designed around the set of competing systems that are tugging at you in different directions, these sorts of things could hypothetically work. I'm just saying that I don't yeah, want to. So you're miss that them. you'd be able to it see it offhand.
1: That's what you I'm know. trying to ask. Because yeah. we want to get away from the notion of a random event, like we saw in Civilization 4, which is not connected to anything you were or were not doing.
5: Correct. If there's going to be some kind of climate change or global warming thing, it needs to be a reaction to something that you're doing in the game, something that you also had the choice to do differently earlier in the game. Like what Phil said is there has to be choice and there has to be agency and the player has to be able to understand that these are the consequences and these things are going to happen if I take these actions. Just like I said, in a city builder game, you know, like SimCity or City Skylines or something like that, if you build a bunch of houses right next to all your factories spewing pollution and smoking the air, all the people living in those houses are going to get sick. You can mitigate that by building hospitals and stuff like that nearby, but the underlying problem is that you built your factories too close to your houses
4: and you shouldn't have done that. When you're building a game, which one really gets to your emotions more? A 10% boost or a 5% penalty? Which one makes you feel more emotional if you were to get either of those?
1: Most people are probably going to feel that 5% penalty simply because it's a negative and there's, generally speaking, stronger emotions attached to that negative, whereas if you express it as a positive in some other measure, then people are more likely to say, rather than being punished for doing something or not doing something, I'll be rewarded for doing something or not doing something.
4: So when it comes to 4X, in general, you try to make people want to have the better yields for those extrinsic motivations, but like you do need to stop them at some point. You need to make sure that you can't just expand faster than everyone else and just win.
1: Nobody wants to return to Infinite City Sprawl, which at its kind of purest mm. form... right? If this person was writing this article 15 years ago, and we were talking about Civilization 1, 2, or 3... Of course. He'd be on to something more, this Alistair Macquire.
4: But what we don't want is to pull too much back. We don't want to be like, hey, you're going to start getting a bunch of debuffs on you if you start going too far. Like, you know, just make it very hidden in the code, but don't put too many limits to your growth or else people are going to get mad. People aren't going to play the game anymore.
7: I feel
1: like we've got two elements going on here. One. It has to be a series of meaningful choices. Things that you could have done or should have done beforehand have now led to some point in the game, whether it's the late game, the early game, or the mid game, that now that there's this consequence or there's this reward, and there's pros and cons, or consequence or a benefit. The new challenges that you could have emerge in the later game to feel like it's already a foregone conclusion, who's going to win? I think it'd be perfectly fine to go with the let's go ahead and end the game so it's not a slog fest.
4: Yeah, domination victory.
1: Or get rid of the victory conditions and go with some kind of objectives. But if you're going to introduce something later in the game that's then going to challenge those players that have done everything well, then you don't want to penalize them. You don't want it to be that, okay, you now have this negative that there's nothing that you can do simply to try to rubber band everybody else. It's just, here's another challenge That depending upon how you respond to it is going to have a meaningful impact, and you're going to have to react in some way, because if you're in the lead and you don't take this into account, then you're not necessarily going to be in the lead anymore. So it's not that all of a sudden, here's the switch, let's propel everybody else, let's challenge everybody as though it's the start of the new game again, and there's another layer to expanding, exploiting, exterminating, and explore. You need to know your enemies are to kill them, Dan. Exactly. That's very true. That's very true.
3: (laughs) Where are you on the map again? Wait, what? Go ahead and pin your capital for me.
1: You put it a little bit
3: over there.
2: (laughs) Totally not a nuke target.
3: No. (laughs) (laughs) You pin like some other person's capital on the map. (laughs) (laughs)
2: That's totally where (laughs) I am, guys. Yeah, pin the AI (laughs) capitals. There you go.
5: I did very much like that victory condition in Civ 4, where it was like own 60% of the map or something like that. That was a.
2: Yeah.
1: I'm
5: very disappointed that it was not in Civ 5 and Civ 6. And I'd really like to have something like that back, along with, you know, the options for cooperative victories as well. I think would be a very good thing to allow the game to end sooner, where you and your allies are just like, all right, you know, hey, we're going to win the game. So.
4: Or maybe not own. even just the military, uh, you win. If you're pulling ahead in any victory so hard, you win. The tricky part about that, though, is that because there are different victory conditions
5: and they are so different from one another, just because you're pulling ahead in one victory condition, someone else might be pulling ahead in another victory condition. So There's it can't just be
3: one. Get conquered threat too.
5: Yeah, you can be two eras ahead in technology, but if you didn't build any military units, then you know <laughs> all your cities are about to become Shaka's cities. So
6: <laughs>
5: yeah,
3: that's not really winning. <laughs>
5: <laughs> right. And then there's also the thing where, you know, maybe I do have the biggest military, I've got the best research, but someone else is super crazy culture and tourism and so I can't just call a win unless I do something to stop that other person's culture generation.
1: The way Alistair has constructed this article doesn't strike me as someone that would say in order to respond to this late game drag where it's just end turn, end turn, end turn. Doesn't sound like he's interested in having it so that the game go ahead and ends. But what he's talking about is a rubber banding thing here, and its I think you could change the way the late game is so that it's not that the game ends, but again, it becomes a new phase. And if he's already not going off the rails on that point, when he talks about towards the end that with Rise and Fall, specifically with Civilization VI, uncritically repeating the myth of perpetual growth, where Emery talks about, oh yes, it uncritically reinforces one of the most damaging myths of our time, a myth currently destroying our only biosphere. Okay, so you were talking about game design, and now you're talking about environmental protection in the real world? You went too far. This isn't a gaming article, uh, per se. Yeah. Oh, no, no. It, yeah, it, it, his
4: claims go a little too far. I was trying, yeah, I was trying to be a little criticism. constructive with it, but like...
5: Yeah, <laughs> I think what he's basically doing is this article is a criticism of mass conspicuous consumption, and he's just applying that criticism
4: to civilization, the game. Yeah, pretty much. If you're going too much, then... Uh, nothing's stopping you like um, that's the problem with 4x games and it's like well yeah, yeah technically
1: in the chat the buzzing says i think we can imagine a civ style game where winning is growing by constantly overcoming adversity Okay. In the form of a stream of small to moderate random events that affect one or more players, if we get rid of that word random, I like to think on this show, but random events... Procedural. Yeah, we're going to distinguish that, (laughs) and we're going to talk about the procedural events, and if it says it affects one or more players, I could certainly see a situation in the case of global warming, which often comes up, and this is an example. If you're on a continent with somebody and you know that there's options for them to not pollute as much, but they choose to do so, if you're a of that, and you have a way to respond to that, whether that's militaristically, economically something, in order for them to stop, because you recognize it's not just going to affect them at some point. Like, it should start affecting them first. But if it starts to spill over into you, or it will spill over into you, then you have to decide, is that really an effect that I can just go ahead and ignore? Or do I really need to actively do something about that, in which case you also have a meaningful choice? I just don't want it to be that. You know what? I'm so far ahead. I'm going to win this game, but I'm just going to go ahead and pollute the landscape. But it's not going to matter to me because I'm so far ahead. I don't have to worry about everyone else trying to industrialize now because they're not going to be able to industrialize because they're going to be dead. Where is the meaningful response to that? Yeah. You, you would have little to no control over that. That would not be fun. And I feel like that's kind of what Alistair's saying that civilization should get to in order to respond to this issue. And that just makes a bad situation worse.
4: When you were starting that argument, I thought you were about to say that random offense is a swear word on this podcast or
8: something. <laughs>
3: well...
8: according <laughs> to feel it is.
3: No, like I, I actually am not that opposed to random events. I'm opposed to random events with no agency and no meaningful choice to them, and that's what the four events were mostly. There were some that were that wasn't the case, right? Like, but that was example- the problem with them.
5: Like For example, I, th- I think some of the Total War games have had mechanics where if you're trading with certain civilizations, random events would pop up that would affect your diplomatic relations with those other civilizations. Like like one of your diplomats would perform like some kind of va pas or something like that at a uh, diplomatic event, and now you have to choose whether you're going to punish him or not, and that would influence how the other civ perceives you in sometimes either obvious or not entirely obvious ways. So that's one thing. If it's just a completely random thing that comes out of the blue, I think that's bad. But if it's something where you're doing something that is causing these events to happen, and the thing that you're doing is clear to you, like you know why it's happening, and there is something meaningful that you can do about it, and it doesn't even have to just be a little dialogue prompt coming up saying you've got one of two or three choices, like it could just be a mechanical thing where you have to change your behavior in the game in order to resolve this event. But I think those are the two most important things is you need to understand why it's happening and you need to have something meaningful that you can do about it.
4: If you're out expanding all the other s- sieves then maybe you should just bump up the difficulty. Maybe that's <laughs> something you can do.
1: <laughs> Super deity. I can just see it now in a multiplayer game. Hey, you're running away with the game. We've now increased the yields or whatever that you have to achieve by 300%. Screw you. <sighs> <laughs> <laughs> oh man, make that dynamic
4: too. Like, uh,
1: it's like, oh, you're almost to the finish line. Drew oh, it over here. Yeah. Come catch up. Come oh, catch man. up. <laughs>
4: and just have the yields just uh, go down by a dynamic percent. Oh man, that would just be awful. That's something that can be implemented and be the most awful thing I ever think of.
1: Or even better, hey, you kept increasing your yields of science and production. That's fantastic. But hey, the world can't support that. So the person with the lowest amount wins because they were conserving energy. What? <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> Jester wins. <laughs> And I think this also gets a little into realism versus gameplay. Yeah, in reality, you have disasters and floods and things, but we're here to have fun, not to have a realistic simulation. If I wanted that, I could go play SimCity or City Skylines.
4: Are you sure you don't want all your yields to go
1: down for no reason?
2: Yes, I'm very sure I do not want my yields to do that. Thank you. It would make all your
1: other problems in the game, Mackie, seem minuscule in comparison.
2: Uh, nah. I would have a bigger problem. Rage quitting. (laughs) (laughs) I like what uh,
8: Civ 4 had done with the corporations for endgame content and what Civ 5 had done introducing archaeology and excavating artifact locations. So, I mean, that made the endgame, to me, more interesting, more agency. I can see why they want maybe somehow to be able to stop a player that looks like he's pulling so far ahead, but without introducing some, uh, let's say, bullshit. Random event just to stop them. If someone's playing head culturally, then maybe you need to come in with an army. It was a spaceship, but if they're domination, then there's not too much you can do if they're conquering most of the continent, the world.
3: That's always the problem, isn't The game's design right now is just too favoring military for anything else to be viable.
8: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's like you're almost changing what the game is. I mean, here you're trying to be the best of the best to get. One of these goals, either the best of culture, best of science, or best of military.
3: That will always be persistent reality, though, in a 4X. Unless you make military trivial, then it's always, if you get conquered, you can't win your other victory condition. (laughs) Right.
0: Number nine, from episode 316, the position that the Civilization series is perpetuating an untruth about humanity is called into question.
5: One post on Civ Fanatics posted by OOV, O-O-V. Shift-enter allows you to quote bank production science and culture. So for players who weren't aware of this, you can hold the shift button and press enter to force the end of your turn. So you can skip giving units orders, you can skip assigning research projects, and you can even skip apparently building things in your cities. Apparently, it doesn't just send all that production and research to the garbage can. It actually just banks it and then just dumps it all into whatever production or research project you assign when you finally do assign it. So people have been using this as a tactic slash strategy slash maybe exploit to finish projects really quickly. I see a post in this thread about building, I think it was the uh, Temple of Artemis in like a few turns by just banking all their production until they researched the appropriate tech and then dumping it all into the temple and getting a near instant wonder. So the post here is basically asking if instead of building a monument or a scout or a builder or a warrior or an archer, just build nothing and save it up. Who does it? Does anyone do it?
0: It's kind of dangerous, because what happens when the barbs find you?
1: <laughs> and even you have the barbarians turned off, and you have no other competition on the map, you're not doing anything else with those turns. You're not constructing something else. I could see someone trying to do this situationally, but just as a general practice, I think, yeah, it is very, very risky. It just seems kind of lulzy. I don't think it's a cheat. I think it's a bug. I don't think this is what was intended to be done, quite honestly, and it was missed. But the fact that it has been in the game as long as it has, and we have had updates since then, just tells me that the Civilization community isn't bitching enough about it. So, we need to get on that.
5: I've had situations in the past where the game is just bugged out, and it keeps giving me a prompt to do something that I can't actually do. Like, it tells me a unit needs orders, but... All of my units have been given orders, and I click on the thing, and it doesn't take me to a unit or activate a unit anywhere. It just won't go away. So I use the shift-enter thing to bypass that problem, and I'm wondering if maybe that's an artifact from testing when maybe the devs were having that problem consistently with the end turn button, and uh, they just either forgot to take it out or was like, well, these bugs are still in the game rarely, so let's just leave it. It's a feature.
0: Shift-Enter for instant-end turn has been a thing for a long time. It was in Civ 4 and 5, both.
1: And it's fantastic, especially in multiplayer situations where, <laughs> I mean, the turn timer is even more helpful sometimes when you get stuck, but sometimes Shift-Enter is also helpful to actually progress the game. Or in some cases, I'm not getting the notification I should be getting, press Shift-Enter, and you may in fact get a notification before you can then go ahead and roll over the turn. But quite frankly, the notion of banking this just makes me think of... Remember in Civilization V and the advanced game options, there was the allow policy saving and allow promotion saving? So that was like a formal option in the game. So to me, do one of two things. Either modify the game setup to either allow that specifically, because that's not part of the you know the base game settings, or just remove it altogether.
9: Yeah, it might be easier said than done just because of how it might be built. It's
0: a simple if statement.
9: Yeah, I'm just wondering if that would cause problems with... uh. Losing overflow or something. I don't know. When I was actually doing out the math earlier, I was wondering whether or not that would be better than building a worker just to chop down forests. And it sort of breaks even. The worker gets you all the worker bonuses from policy cards and uh, Magnus and stuff. But this gets you uh, immediate production and you don't have to worry about finding those forests in the first place.
5: Yeah, can't use Magnus to buff it if you're not uh, chopping or
9: harvesting. Yeah, exactly.
1: From our chat, and again, our our episodes are recorded live, The Buzzing says this is a pretty low priority as a bug. It has no impact on any player's experience, save multiplayer balance. I don't think it's just the multiplayer experience that you're going to encounter this, but it's very unlikely you're going to encounter this incidentally, and even if you are pressing shift-enter to roll over turn, you're probably not going to notice this. But The Buzzing also says if you fix this, you risk making another unknown bug. I get why it's certainly lower on the priority list than maybe some other bugs. There shouldn't just be like a hotfix or something for this. But I don't think the possibility of introducing a new bug means that you don't try to fix it. But you do prioritize it, although the buzzing does also say, in order to address this, it's quote, not a simple if statement, but he also says, I guess it comes down to the resource overflow from a wonder refund, chopping forest, unique abilities, inspiration. You need to keep those in one turn production. I just think it's a risk, like, am I going to go ahead and construct a wonder? Am I willing to invest all of those turns in something that I may or may not get? Yes, in this case, but Dan, you are going to get something. You will eventually be able to overflow that into something. Yeah, but are you really that much farther ahead than if you were quote-unquote, actively doing something with those hammers on that particular turn, on those particular turns that you rolled over. Yeah. It's interesting to note, but I don't think it's... It's not egregious. I don't think it's people should be getting banned from multiplayer communities from using this or people raving about it in single-player, but it is certainly worth noting, and I do think it adds some strategy. Unintentional strategy, not great strategy, but it's strategy
5: yeah of course, if you're not using that production to build a monument or you know your first district, then obviously you're losing out on whatever yields those provide and if you're not building scouts and units, then you're missing out on the opportunity cost of finding ancient ruins and natural wonders and certain eurekas and inspirations so yeah it's a it's a trade off
1: One argument I did see in the thread for using this was it's great for those turns when your cities have nothing worthwhile to build, and I'm like. I question your city placement then, because there's always something that you could be building or always something that you could be investing in. It's not, well, I've got nothing to do. I'm going to shift enter to bank stuff.
2: i like maybe if you were a couple of turns off of the tech that you really wanted to get a good head start on a particular wonder or something, and then you might want to bank it for a couple of turns like that. That would be a great way to use it.
9: Yeah, that's where I'd want to use it the most. Build a district or a wonder, something that's going to be kind of expensive.
5: Yeah, get down those commercial hubs in like one turn after researching uh, currency. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it would be insane. I do see uh, one post here from, I think it's just pronounced Boyan Soon, saying that the shift enter to skip turn is one of several exploits that are banned in China. And I'm just wondering, by the Chinese government? Like, (laughs) Like, is there an official governing body in China that determines the rules and exploits for Civ 6?
1: I kind of interpreted that as like the multiplayer community concentrated within China. You will find that this is typically banned in their games. But yeah, they, I also thought the same thing. I'm like, I know the Chinese government pays attention to lots of things, but I don't yeah. think civilization <laughs> is quite that important for that communist country or any country to really get into the mechanics of a game. Banning a particular game, maybe, based on its content, but banning a particular, its not even a mechanic, banning a particular tactic yeah. within a game? Right. Well, I could see people within the government on their own time who play the game paying attention to such things. I mean, sure, it's like, crap, I couldn't get the game banned, but I'm going to get this banned. Well, you know, I'll write more power to you. It could also be that they
5: maybe actually have some kind of esports tournament organization that actually does set formal rules for these sorts of things that we just don't have here quite yet in the States.
0: This is also apparently the way it works in CivRev as well.
1: I think it's good for people to know about it, and if a multiplayer community wants to make it clear that that's not acceptable, then as long as that information is communicated up front, and then if people go ahead and agree to that, and then they violate it, then yes, they should be penalized for that. But beyond that, in and of itself, I think we're good. I mean, it's good to raise awareness of it. It'd be nice. It, sh- it should be fixed at some point. It's really just more interesting than anything, because it's kind of that hold over, like you were saying, Candice, in a way that this was the way it was in CivRev. And I said, it made me think of, you know, the policy saving, for example, from Civilization V. It's like, I didn't even miss it in Civilization VI. And now it's kind of like, oh, that would be nice to have that as as an option within the game. One other thing to think about with
5: regard to balance is, I'm assuming that the AIs cannot use this. So the question of, is it entirely
1: fair, although I'm sure it just offsets all the other ways in which the AI cheats, so... Well, I do understand in Civilization VI it could be an issue if you're doing that and you're saving stuff, and it's like, hey, I can go ahead and I'm next in line to get this great scientist, for example, but no, no, I'm banking stuff, and there might be some issue where, you know, sorry, cannot recruit.
0: Number 8 from Episode 323. If and How to Implement the Concept of a Central Bank for a Given Civilization.
2: CK and wo posted about a central bank, something uh, unlocked after you research economics, buildable in the city square, the commercial hub, or the government plaza. Mm-hmm. I mean, if it's a treasury, the government plaza seems more appropriate, but would allow the ability to borrow or take out a loan against your empire. What? Each loan requires gold per turn, uh, and basing the gold amount and requirement of gold per turn on how many commercial buildings you have in, in the capital or all of your cities in general. Like uh, One market in the capital could allow you to borrow 500 gold at 15 gold per turn? Uh, uh? I
1: wonder what game speed we're talking about here and at what point yeah. we're talking about, just for added I context. And that seems like
2: otherwise. a really low low threshold for 500 gold.
1: Well, that might
5: be just where it starts, and then maybe it goes up over the course of the game.
2: Yeah, I just, yeah, but one market, I, I think you'd need a few more markets than that to get $500. Yeah, well, gold.
5: They're talking about having a central bank that you build somewhere. So I would have assumed that you would have to have the central bank
10: in order to do the loans.
2: Yeah, so. but then saying that the amount that you could borrow is based off of other buildings, it would seem like it would have to be everything in your capital or something like that.
5: Well, you, yeah, you want to be careful about something as complicated as that as opposed to just making it a set value. But yeah, yeah, it could work that way. could be some function of your quote GDP or whatever, but I don't know if it needs to be that complex.
2: Yeah, because even if you just did it by the number of commercial buildings you had across the empire or something like that, it would make sense. I would just really like to know at what point in the game would you only have the one market and then 500 gold would be an appropriate (laughs) loan?
5: Well, I I almost feel like you'd want it to be from a gameplay standpoint, almost the inverse where the cities with less financial infrastructure would be able to take out larger loans because they don't have the capacity to generate that much money quickly anyway. So like from a balance standpoint, I kind of see this as like being a catch up mechanic for cities that mm. or for civilizations that don't have a very strong economy. If you Are make the amount spending of spending
2: all your time building the units to take over other civs, not necessarily infrastructure.
5: Yes. Well, I mean, I, don't know, I mean, yeah, that could be a problem, too. But like it just seems to me like if you make it based on how much financial infrastructure that civ already has kind of is kind of just one of those rich get richer kind of things. And like I don't would, would a city that's generating that much gold per turn need to take out a loan anyway. I almost feel like, like I said, it should work the other way around. It's something that cities with weak financial infrastructure use this in order to get large lump sums in order to build units quickly or improve their economy. But it's an interesting idea. I don't think civilization has ever had a concept of national debt in the game like modeled at all.
2: Yeah, just your overall civ debt, but not in that same way.
5: Yeah, well, you can go into debt where the game starts automatically disbanding units and stuff like that, but that's not the same thing as having like a national debt where Mm -hmm. you're actually paying off debtors, taking out loans and stuff like that, and having a credit rating. Or maybe it could be something like that where maybe it is tied to like some kind of abstract credit rating mechanic where each time you take out a loan, your credit rating goes down until you've paid it off, so... You can't keep taking out large loans like they get smaller and smaller and smaller (laughs) until you paid them all off.
2: So you can't do the EU4 trick of getting into a loan loop and then just declaring bankruptcy.
5: Yeah, and I've done that in like city building games, too, where you take out a loan and then you like pay it off with a cheaper loan and then take out the big loan again. And you just have kind of an endless cycle of money that um, (laughs) that can go bad in EU4, though. At least. (laughs) Yeah,
2: well, well, they did make suggestions here to make that. Possibly go bad here. One yeah. was a, a housing market sort of sim where, if too much housing is available, the rate of gold return would go up to reflect you have oversupply in a housing market or your citizens are too unhappy. I eh? can
5: even see national debt maybe even being a civic.
2: Uh, well, or a national budget being the civic and the debt's just an effect of it or something. I... Oh, no, just
5: the concept of a national debt being a leaf civic somewhere on the civic tree where it unlocks this ability. Uh, as opposed, makes, to, as oh, opposed yeah. to being
1: part of economics.
2: Yeah, because central banks really is a somewhat more modern idea.
1: Yeah, I think it's going to be a question also of when it appears in the game. We wouldn't want it to be, like you said, Jason, the richer getting richer. And I'm not keen on it being used as a catch-up mechanic simply because we know how powerful gold is in the game and being able to compensate or indeed overcompensate with production. You could tie it to a Civic. Like if you want to be able to construct the central bank, have it be a government plaza district, then you have to go and get that Civic, okay. Then I have to go and construct that central bank. In the meantime, you could be saying, what I'm going to be able to get out of that, maybe it's better that I just build some more commercial hubs establish some more trade routes getting into previous topic, for example. But I kind of see it as like a short-term compensation mechanic. And I think about certain turn cast games and our cooperative multiplayer games when we're going up against an AI. And yes, I'm looking at buying units and I'm like, oh man, I'm 15 gold short. I would really like to be able to finish building this frigate this turn so I can send it to the front. And I go to somebody and say, hey, can I get 15 gold? Great, yes, thank you. Small lump sums that can get you kind of over that hump because it's a timing thing. I would like that X number of gold this turn because it's going to allow me to buy something. Even if you had nothing in the bank, it's going to allow me to buy that one thing, but I have to have it so that my economy is sufficient that it would pay X amount of gold per turn over the course of however many turns it is. And you could have it so that, you know, I would be willing to pay maybe uh, less gold per turn over a longer period of time in order to get that gold because I don't have a lot of gold coming in. So then the central bank is still getting compensated and they view you as a reasonable loan risk. But let's say there's 10 turns, for example. During that 10 turns, you can't ask for another loan. You need to be able to demonstrate that, no, I'm going to pay this back. And then also tying to what you said in part, Jason, that if you were successful in paying that off in 10 turns that you managed to keep gold per turn income so that you were able to do that and you were not defaulting on that loan then maybe you could get a little more The next time that it would be a little more generous, that you could get a little more gold or it could be the same amount of gold again, but you've got more turns to pay it off or you don't have to have quite as much gold per turn in order to pay it off. So it becomes kind of those fringe things where I would like to use it in a moment, but I'm not going to be able to borrow like thousands upon thousands of gold to compensate for the fact that I've got three cities and you've got 30 a bit extreme there, of course, or the fact that I have 10 cities and you have 10 cities, you decided to invest in economic infrastructure over the last 50, 60 turns. I did not. And in one lump sum, I'm now able to compensate for the fact that I didn't do those things over the last 40 or 50 turns that you did.
5: Well, but the players that do have a better economy would have the option to take out these loans as well. It's just they would be in a situation where they wouldn't necessarily need to. Like, that's kind of how I'm thinking of it, where, you know, everyone can do it, but it's going to be more useful for the people who have poor economies. You know, I'm not an economist, but I think historically, that's usually what national debt is used to do. It's used to kickstart a struggling or stagnant economy. I'm fine as
1: long as it's a band-aid. Right. However you view it as a problem, as long as it's a band-aid and it's not a rubber band. Right. A sieve that's in the back of the class economically
5: should not be just perpetually taking out loans and buying buildings and units until they're suddenly the top dog in the game. Apparently, that should not be the way that should work. But it really depends on what the role you would want for it to be. Would you want this to be a reward that successful players get to get more money? Or would you want it to be, you know, like I suggested, more in the ways of like a catch up mechanic?
1: I think you kind of said it earlier, which is that regardless of your empire's economic state, you can take advantage of this. It's just that's that situational thing that either your economy is really good or it's really bad, and it's just in this particular moment you need this additional lump sum in order to be able to kickstart whatever it is that you think that you're going to try to do, then I think that's fair. It ends up being that choice. It's just like, okay, do I construct this district in this city right now, or do I construct a different district? Do I not construct that? It's not, whew, I don't need to worry about the fact that I'm only making 10 gold per turn. I just took out 5,000 gold. I don't need to worry about filling up my trade route capacity. I'm good with my one out of seven, eight. I can ignore that part of the game now. I can ignore that aspect. So we find that sweet spot between, oh, sure, you can go ahead and get out lots of money in loans because you're already generating lots of money which in and itself is its own reward, while at the same time not being the other extreme. And I think we're all in agreement that we need to find that sweet spot, and there are checks and balances that you can have in there, such as, again, okay, you can't just build it from the outset of the game. You have to go to this particular civic. Perhaps it's down a path that you wouldn't necessarily always go down because it's always getting to the good stuff, that you then have to go and spend the time to construct it in a district. So you can't go and buy a central bank. Uh, You know, you have to spend the time to build it. And then in the meantime, it's the question of, am I really that much farther off now? Or could I have just done something else with my research into my civics and the production in my city that has the government plaza? That would get me just as far ahead. But if you're really stuck, then you can go ahead and you can plan for that as well. That's the other thing, right? That you have to plan for having the central bank to be able to use the gold that the central bank could give you, as opposed to saying, hey, game, I'm kind of in a tight spot. Uh Can I just abstractly say that, hey, my palace is my central bank, and I can take out a certain amount of money anytime. No, I think it needs to be a little more of a build up to that.
5: Another thing that you could maybe do to extend this idea is maybe you actually have to declare what you're using the loan for. So maybe you take out a loan to build units, or you take out a loan to build buildings, and you can only do one thing or the other with that money.
1: Could also tie it maybe to that, okay, you wanted to take out this loan right now, Okay, you've taken out the 500 gold. And so it's like on that turn, okay, go ahead and take that action. Spend that 500 gold. And you said that you wanted it to, I don't know, purchase a workshop. Okay, so it's now tied to, you don't necessarily have to have it be that strict that it only applies to industrial zones, but it could be that whatever amount you've currently got in your treasury, the game knows and it's just on this turn, you know, don't just have it ride. Like you want to be able to do something with that gold right now. And so you go and you spend it And it's done. And it can be allocated for, yes, it can be allocated for units, it can be allocated for buildings, one of those two things. And then the money is spent, and then starting the next turn, you're paying it back.
3: With interest. Lots of interest.
1: Oh yeah, I think it's fair to say that in the end, over the course of the number of turns that you're paying it back, as is suggested in the example, you borrowed 500 gold, and in the end, you ended up paying 750. That Some percentage that you're going to have to pay back more ultimately, but it was better for you to pay that more gold over an extended period of time because you got that lump sum right up front.
3: And keep in mind, historically, for most of the time period that Civ covers, the central banks weren't a thing. An alternative idea is instead of it being a
5: mechanic where you're taking out a loan against yourself, maybe it is a mechanic where you have the diplomatic deal, an option on the diplomacy screen to take out a loan from another Civ. Where, uh-huh. you know, you get a lump sum and then you owe them gold per turn with interest. And if you don't fulfill the payments, then there would be diplomatic or economic repercussions.
3: Uh, is there going to be a good CV for clones?
5: Oh, lol.
1: <laughs> I like that idea more, but I worry about the programming of the artificial intelligence to handle yeah, this it's competently.
5: Easily exploitable. You just you get your lump sum of gold from the AI and then you declare war on the next turn to cancel the deal and not pay any of it back.
0: Number 7 from episode 321 A comprehensive consideration for a proposal for nuke victory conditions in the Civilization series.
5: Proposals for new victory conditions. Hey, it's our old friend Supremacy King. New victory conditions is one of my favorite topics, so hooray. This proposal does remind me a little bit of the um, victory conditions for the new Civ New Dawn board game, which we talked about a few episodes ago, Mm. where you've got a set of objective cards and in the board game you have to complete one objective from each card. This proposal is there would just be a set of X many objectives and you just have to complete a certain number of them. Now, I suppose they could probably scale the number based on, like, difficulty. Maybe on higher difficulties, you have to complete more objectives or something like that, which could be an interesting way of forcing players to diversify. So his proposals are, you know, nine different f- possible objectives. One is control at least 75% of all land tiles, which is,
1: you know, kind of similar to Civ IV's, I think, domination victory? Yep. It was a percentage of the tiles and the percentage of the population. So in that way, that was one of two things, just like he's proposing any two things, any two conditions. Number Number two is research the future tech
5: five times. I think that's what that's supposed to mean. Number three is research the future civic five times. Number four is achieve, he puts a thousand, but I assume just some threshold of very high tourism. Number five is have your religion be the majority religion in 75% of cities, so as opposed to 100% of them, which I guess would trigger the, uh, well, I guess he's saying these would completely replace the existing victory conditions so correct total population number seven is build 20 wonders 20 seems like it might be a lot especially considering how restrictive the placement of some wonders is in civ 6 so that number might need to be tweaked but uh you
3: can say that about any of these
5: yeah recruit at least 20 great people ally with at least 75 percent of civs in the game well that one just mechanically doesn't work right now because the way the alliance mechanic is, you can only have five alliances total. So if you're playing a game with more than however many civs, that's like literally impossible to do without changing the way alliances work. Or but in killing some
3: civs. <laughs> oh,
5: yeah, I guess that it put a little addendum to that ally with at least 75% of remaining civs. Uh-huh. Uh, well. Probably there should be a city state thing in here, too. Like maybe a tenth one would be be suzerain of X number of city states. But yeah, I I like the idea of having victory objectives that try to reach as opposed to these very rigid categorical victories, because I think the poster here proposes two of them. Like, I think, you know, that could be something that scales by difficulty setting where, you know, if you're playing on deity, maybe you've got to complete six or seven or eight of them that's forcing you to not just rely on building military units and conquering everybody but actually diversifying your civilization and using all the mechanics in the game
3: that's not Uh, how it would go though because like probably not but one of my sticking points with the game is that it doesn't end when it's over and so like if these could be tuned to the point where you can end a game when it's over if you brought it down the two-thirds of all the land tiles and population for example that might be reasonable or something in that territory but, yeah, if you require like eight of these, what people are in DD are going to do is they're going to conquer almost all the map, and then it'll just be their leisure when they finish the rest of it. So, it'll just make one game take longer, ultimately. Yeah. Because what uh, we
2: don't need right now that is making things take the game ending longer. Well, but the difference with
5: this is these victory conditions or objectives are things that you would still be working towards achieving. So it's not like you've already met all the victory conditions and you're just hitting end turn right until you actually get the victory screen.
3: There's no doubt. Like once you're militarily dominant, there's no doubt any longer unless somebody else is about to win. But assuming that you're past the point where somebody else is about to win, it doesn't matter. You just keep conquering people and you're going to get this stuff eventually because there's no chance anybody else is.
5: Right, and and I would assume that just conquering everybody else is just always a de facto victory condition. Like uh, the poster here, do, I don't even think put any capturing x number of cities or x number of capitals as an objective. So well, that you would have the total hop and land tiles if you did this. So that well, they, true. Well,
1: that's the thing that would be incidental. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, probably.
5: But you know, there's still nothing that you can do really that would stop a player from being able to win the game by just conquering every other player.
3: And that's what I'm saying, though, like they don't put out like a seven point victory requirement on deity because that's like ultimately that's just what you're going to be forcing. Yeah,
1: perhaps. You know, some of the word choice is interesting, and I think about whatever victory condition we put into place, there's always domination. Just take over everybody, and then yours culture is the only culture. You know, (laughs) your science output is on the only science output, so of course you're going to be able to win the space race. Your
2: tourism is the highest tourism. Yeah. It's
1: not like anyone else is going
3: to be building 20 wonders, and they don't have any cities. But if it's based on tourism output rather than
5: just relative tourism with the other players, then that would be something where you would still have to work to achieve it. I mean, if there's no other players in the game, then obviously there's no resistance to stop you from just building however the heck many theater districts you need to get that threshold. So it's still the same problem for Phil, which is that the victory is a foregone conclusion. But that would change it from just, oh, kill the dominant tourism generator. By default, you are generating the most tourism.
3: I would like to point out here that some of these would be threatening to the point where... Defender would have initiative, even more so than now, because you kind of have that with tourism and space, but those require a lot of investment. If you tune down the investment, there's going to be some point where it's not completely impossible to conquer somebody trying for it, but it's also not completely impossible to outproduce and overwhelm somebody who is trying to build 20 wonders, for example, or maybe it's 10, whatever the
1: break point is.
3: And so you would have more of a trade off, you know, are you going to be the one who tries to race for a victory condition or are you going to try to intercept other victory conditions?
1: Some of the language, I mean, first off, Supremacy King noted that he's got, some numbers have question marks around them, because to be tweaked to make sure the choices are adequately difficult, quote-unquote, and in addition to being possible, other than the the warmonger aspect that's inherent in it, I could see it scaling on uh, game speed and also map size as well in terms of the numbers, but some of the language choice is interesting, because when I read build at least 20 wonders, if that was literally build at least 20 wonders, it couldn't be, well... I just captured all of these cities and they have, there's 20 wonders, therefore I win.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: Actually, n- no, you didn't build them, you captured them. Or if your tourism output was, hey, look at this, I just captured all of these cities, my tourism output is now a thousand, therefore I win. You could say, no, it actually needs to be X number of thousands of tourism that you have already generated over X number of turns, which you might say, well, wouldn't that be possible for the warmonger to do anyway? Because if they're the warmonger and they just hold on to those cities for X numbers of turns, then they will have generated that output. But I'm thinking the idea or the hope would be that if you said it was based on total tourism output, so if you needed, say, 10,000, for example, then you've got 1,000 tourism per turn in your civilization, then once you've got to 10 or however many turns it takes you to get to 10,000 that you win, and that could happen before, possibly before the warmonger comes and takes your cities to then be able to have that tourism output over X number of turns.
2: You mean like the game in the background is keeping a cumulative score of all the tourism output you've ever had? Yes, exactly. Okay. Okay.
1: Just to give an incentive for, well, why don't I just go and be a warmonger, or now I've got to worry about the warmonger taking my stuff ties into other parts in the game too like in terms of no diplomacy we've talked about shared victory conditions as well but you could get you could get into lots of other interesting things here but i just wouldn't want it to be well you go ahead you build all these nice little things you even research all of these nice little things you get yourself to five future techs or five future civics or whatever i'm just going to sit here building these units more or less matched to your era and then i'm just going to go ahead and i'm going to take your stuff and then look at that. My science output is now good enough in order to research that, that the game would be tracking not just what you've got on that particular turn, because then I also thought about what if you hold on to it for X number of turns? Yeah, well, if you're the warmonger, you're in the best position to be able to hold on to it for X number of turns, because you've got the greatest military, and you're probably going to be able to hold on to it that long, even if everybody else in the game finally went, "Welp, screw you, we're going to try to take that back. Well, assuming loyalty doesn't take it from you. Yeah.
5: <laughs> There's that too. One thing in here that that I do want to point out that uh, is kind of a downside is I kind of struggle to see how any sort of cooperative victories would fit into this paradigm. I mean, unless you just have a mechanic where you allow ties, where, oh, if more than one Civ reaches the threshold of victory objectives in the same turn, then they all win. Hooray. But that's still not really like... (laughs) That's going to be rare. Yeah, that's more of an incidental thing. That's not really a like we're working together to achieve a cooperative victory, which is something that I would really like to see in the game because, you know, I personally believe that that's something like that is the only way that diplomacy is ever really going to feel like it actually works the way it's intended to work is if you can actually build alliances and coalitions with the intent of winning the game in those alliances.
1: Well, I still think what's been suggested in the thread by Supremacy King could do that. I'll use the, let's say, the objective is not to achieve 1,000 tourism per turn, but overall 10,000 tourism. Okay, so there's this person over here that, yeah, they're the warmonger. They're going to try to take out everybody. Hey, you're generating 500 tourism a turn. I'm generating 500 tourism a turn. It probably wouldn't be that numbers that high. You know, if we can, together, if we can hold out on having a sufficient number of our cities taken, then we can win the game together because we will pool our tourism together and we will prevent that warmonger from being able to take it over because that person's trying to win for themselves, right? And so we can win together more quickly, if we combine and we ally, and you might say, well, you, it shouldn't just be that one ally that your 500 and your 500 is now a 1,000. Maybe it doesn't generate that absolute value enough that if you want it to be a shared condition, maybe it's only good enough for two-thirds or three-quarters of the output or whatever. But I think with the way that this is set up, you just tweak it a little bit. You can have it be so that you can have not only victories other than warmongering or congratulations, you want a cultural victory by warmongering because you've got greater cultural output and tourism output than anybody, then you can have those shared victories and those shared victories are not warmongering. And in fact, you've been able to successfully counter the warmonger by allying with the right people at the right time. Well, but this
5: proposal still requires that you achieve multiple conditions in order to win. So even if you are sharing in one of them, does that necessarily mean that you're going to be sharing in the other one? So, you know, Dan, if you and I are playing and we've got the shared culture or whatever, and then I build my 20th wonder, do I win and you don't?
1: I would say in in a situation like that, yeah, where the Alliance isn't based, for example, on the tourism, like we've got a specific type of tourism... That's an important question, and I think either go two ways. You can either say that, you know, in order to get that second condition, you've got 17 wonders, I've got 12, so if you build three more, then your contribution to our winning is not only building the three more wonders, but also contributing to your tourism output along with my tourism output, and then that way, I would know that, hmm... That other person is actually going to be doing a little bit more in order to win this shared victory condition, and you also recognize that I'm actually going to end up be contributing a little bit more to this shared victory condition. So maybe I don't want to win with you. Maybe I want to win with somebody else, or maybe I want to try to go with uh, go it on my own by getting these own two victory conditions. Which is, Dan, I really don't need your tourism. I don't have to worry about this warmonger taking me out in 20 turns. It's going to take him 30. So I'm just going to take a few extra turns and then win the game on my own because I'm going to finish these wonders in a few extra turns. And therefore, I get the victory and you don't. I think that could still work within the diplomacy aspect.
5: So let me see if I'm understanding correctly. Are you saying that, that each of these objectives would have kind of like alliance mechanic tied to them where you and I would be able to declare that we are pursuing this victory condition together and then our resources are pooled? Or is it just an incidental thing where we both happened to achieve the condition and now we're working together? I'm a little confused.
1: I think it should be that it's declared. But part of that declaration is also that each ally knows where everyone stands in terms of their respective outputs. So that if you, for example, are fine that, well, okay, we need two victory conditions to win and I can win by myself or you can win with me, that, you know what, I'm going to achieve that. 20th Wonder, building that 20th Wonder, because I'm at 17 very quickly. But if I get you to join me, then with your tourism output... And my wonder production, we're going to be able to win that much more quickly. And even though it's a shared victory condition, we still win. And your incentive to do that might be this warmonger is going to take me out or is going to take out sufficient number of my cities that, in fact, I'm going to need your tourism output to make up for the tourism output that I've lost, but I can still finish with these few wonders to go, and then we both win together.
5: Yeah, I guess maybe that could be a way of handling it. I don't know how well that would work in practice, but principle, it sounds like
3: an interesting idea. Just conquer all the cities and then you win. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Or wait, new meta, we're going to do permanent alliances again. And one person goes for one victory condition and one person goes for the other victory condition. And then they permanently ally and went on this plot when they do so. Yeah, you'd want systems in place
5: to disallow something like that. Um. Well, one way to do it would be actually, because right now, the way that they've got the alliance system working is you've got the leveling alliances. So, you know, it might be something where you need to reach a level three alliance in a particular category in order for this to even be eligible for a shared victory. And that's actually something that could probably be done in Civ Six now. Say, for example, if Phil and I have a military alliance together, a level three military alliance, and between the two of us, we control every player's capital, maybe that could be a shared victory. Or, you know, similarly, if Dan and I have a research alliance, we could maybe cooperate on sharing our spaceship parts. And if, you know, Mackie and I have a cultural alliance, then we pool our tourism output or something like that. And it, but it would have to be the level three version of that alliance. That could be something. Yeah, that so could it would
3: work. be a surprise.
5: <laughs> right, and that could be something that could work in Civ 6 right now without having to change
3: many of the other rules or mechanics or systems. I'm surprised Dan or Mackie didn't have something to say about that. I actually pulled that crap way back in Civ so 4 <laughs> with uh, Petrox. Oh, the uh, permanent alliance and winning on we the permanent. Spot. We, we, we col- permanent ally culture bombed our capital, so like we we use our separate pools for generating great artists because once you permanently ally it. it pools your great people points. So we deliberately avoided this until late. Farmed out a ton of great artists in a short period of time using specialists and pacifism. And then permanently allied and culture bombed up. One of us had a good city already for culture. So we just picked two other cities and culture bombed them from like... It was like sub-10k to 50k in one turn. And just one culture on the spot. is really stupid.
1: <laughs> Alright. Well, two things. Number one, Mac and I didn't say anything because you tell the story so much better than we do. Second... <laughs> I remember Willow wasn't very impressed but I I don't even remember if you guys were in the game or not, so... (laughs) Honestly, I think it was one of those games where oh, it's going to be a slog fest. number one, to win how we would normally win by taking out all of the AI opponents. And we're going to get that, but it's taking so long. And this is atypical. And you guys thought of it. And fantastic. The game is over. The AI loses one way or the other. That's-
2: yeah. It, 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 we were not mad. It was actually hilarious. <laughs> exactly.
1: It was hilarious. Oh,
3: fair enough. Willow wasn't happy. I remember that. I, but I guess you guys didn't care. <laughs>
2: I think that was future ban from people doing that again. That should tell you something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, this one time is hilarious and funny. Don't make a habit of it.
1: But I think it would make sense that with the alliance system and the different tiers, that you would have to have an established alliance with some type, say, at level one, and then into level two or level three. However, it is that there has to be some measure of time so that it can't just be, say, on this turn, hey, I just realized this in terms of your output of this measure, and you've just realized this output of my measure, or one of us contacted the other to say that, hey, combined, we're going to win. You ally in that turn, boom, congratulations, you've won. That there would be both the build-up, and then there would also be the timing that the game could prompt you, for example, to say, hey, you know, Dan and Jason have just reached, you know, level two or level three of a cultural alliance in their tourism output, and they're set to win the game in X number of turns, so that then the other people in the game would have the chance to say, whoa, wait a minute... Or also even, how come you guys currently have a cultural alliance at uh, Tier 1? What's going on with that? And then if you think that that's going to end up being a threat, then one way or another, you could try to respond that way. Which, part of that could be, mm, maybe I could convince this person to try to win with me. Hey, maybe they'll give me a scientific alliance, and then I can try to edge my way in there and say that, hey, we're going to win that way. And then that leaves that player that now has a cultural alliance and a scientific alliance with an interesting question of whether or not to win with somebody else, and then that would trigger a point where then the game would say, okay, well, Jason has decided rather than trying to win with Mackie, the the alliance that he signed initially, the alliance that he signed with me, that alliance has now been renewed and we're now going on to tier two, and Mackie's like, hey, what the heck, I thought we were going to win, and then that could spill over into some more interesting diplomatic effects as well. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting potential with the current
5: alliance system and the possibility of joint or cooperative victories. Because one of the big problems, you know, because I've pitched the idea of cooperative victories before. And one of the big problems that I always struggled with was trying to find a way to make it so that every player in the game can't just easily win by just cooperating with everyone. Right. Like you don't want a situation where every game, everybody wins because everybody just cooperates. And the way that the alliance system currently works, where you can only have one of each type of alliance with only one other player. Might solve that problem because if each of those alliances is tied to a certain victory condition and you can only have one of that alliance in play at any given time with one other civ. then you're basically looking at a situation where only two players can achieve that one victory condition together and you don't have a situation where all five of us are winning because we all just decided "Eh, we're not going to fight each other this game.
1: I mean, really, I think what we're getting at is we're addressing two things. One, which is the long-standing, this person's going to win. It's just going to take them 20 or 30 turns to achieve it. Can't the game just recognize that now, number one? But then also... Wouldn't it make the game more interesting if there was the possibility for a cooperative win, so a formal win, but then at the same time give other players the chance to recognize that, you know what, they are ahead. They are set to win. They saw something that we didn't see 15 or 20 turns ago, but now we've got X number of turns to try to disrupt that in some way. It's not, you know, I got to go and take, say, Jason and Mackie out because of their scientific alliance. I'm just going to go ahead and declare on one of them or both of them, go and say, take Mackie's major scientific output city, so then I know that that's going to delay their achieving whatever it is that they need in terms of scientific output or cumulative scientific output throughout the game, and then we can stop that victory from happening, and then maybe Jason will be, you know, a rat bastard and then somehow cancel his alliance with Mackie and then turn around and get maybe an alliance with me, and then everyone else says, Jason, wow, you're a jerk. How come you're not defending Mackie? You're just a fair-weather friend. Fine, everyone turns around and dogpiles on Jason. Lots of interesting possibilities here that I think in a way even more interesting than ending the game, even though I think it's more important to be able to end the game. I think the underlying question here though is how well is the AI going to understand this, which always I think needs to be taken into consideration too. Unfortunately, trying to be able to not only have the AI recognize that this is a good deal in terms of winning, but also help them to recognize that, hey, no, this is a bad deal and you're going to lose. The buzzing says in the chat, I wonder if the problem might not be that our game end conditions are victory conditions. Maybe there should just be a bonus for ending the game and a score based on the whole of your performance. And I know this is only part of your comment there, Buzzing, but I hear the word score, and we know just how wonderfully Civ has managed to do that at this point. (laughs) (laughs) I kind of feel like your score ends up being, rather than saying achieving a turn where you're at 1,000 tourism, that over the course of the game, you have achieved this output of tourism, and that contributes to your score, because then that's a direct measure of your cumulative output of some measure over the course of the game. Uh, One problem with that proposal also is it kind of
5: introduces the issue of king making, which is basically if one player ends the game in order to just give a premature victory to another player, that's probably not going to be fun for the other players who are trying to compete for the victory. So, you know, if I'm falling way behind and I just do whatever it is that causes the game to end and then Dan wins because he's got a higher score or whatever, you know, Mackie and Mike and Phil are going to be like, uh, whoa, hold on, we were going to try to actually beat Dan.
1: Yeah, and I know some people could say, well, you were planning on trying to beat Dan. Well, you didn't manage to beat Dan before you managed to get this greater score threshold. But <laughs> at the same time, I, I kind of feel like these type of victory conditions where first off, it's not just one victory condition, it's two, so you can't go all one angle, all focusing on culture or science or domination, number one, but then it's based on, say, a total output over the course of the game, or maybe for some of those conditions that that doesn't make sense, say like the population, for example. So maybe you need to be able to maintain that level of population for X number of turns and then combine that with another reason that is as an effort of your total cumulative output. I think that could make for some very interesting gameplay, and also so that at the mid to late game, it's not even necessarily a foregone conclusion that not only is this person not going to win an X number of turns, but it's no foregone conclusion who's going to win in any number of turns right now. That something interesting could happen, and so long as there was sufficient and meaningful player notification that... This has been happening in terms of these machinations. You know, it could even be that, you know, depending upon your diplomatic contact and, uh, you know, level of visibility and all that, that you know that, hey, Jason is now doing 100 tourism a turn or has reached some kind of, you know, threshold. Or you know that through, again, through diplomatic contact, and that's information that you could share with other civs, that you could act on to try to, to counter. Man, oh man, this could be really good.
5: Yeah, there's a lot of potential in here. I personally believe that the traditional victory conditions are starting to get a little stale at this point, in part because they are so, like, railroaded, and I would like to see victory conditions that really do encourage or even require the players to have to diversify their sieves a little bit more, and, you know, this idea could be a way to do that.
1: And yes, and part of that diversity is not only what you're doing, but also how you are relating or not relating to other players on the map.
5: Right, and having objectives like this where you have to achieve multiple conditions, also does make it so that, you know, you have those situations where, uh uh-oh, somebody is getting close to a victory. Now we have to make sure that we either stop them or we rush to get other conditions as well. And I don't know if this would improve it, but maybe this could be something where, like, the first player to achieve one of these conditions gets the victory condition permanently. So if I get 75% of land tiles, I get that permanently. So if Dan were to then come and take a bunch of my cities and I don't have that anymore, maybe I still have credit for having gotten that.
1: I could see you getting maybe... Hmm. I can see you getting credit for it. I wouldn't want it to be, you were the first one to achieve that, to get, say, 75% of the land tiles, because then if I came around and decimated you, and say you're down to 25% of the land tiles, and now I control 75% of the land tiles, oh, nope, sorry, Dan, Jason already achieved that, even though he didn't capitalize on it. Right. I guess it doesn't
5: necessarily have to be exclusive. It could just be that once you achieve that condition, you've achieved it permanently. It makes your early and mid-game achievements as valuable as your late game achievements. So if I go on a warpath and I build the Roman Empire that conquers pretty much the entire known world, I get credit for that for the remainder of the game, even if somebody does come in and destroy my empire. Of course, if my empire is defeated, I'd have to find a way to achieve one of the other conditions as well, uh, which would not be easy if I'm completely destroyed. But it's something where it makes it so that Reaching for some of these objectives early in the game could be another source of intrigue, because if you do reach for it early and attain it, you know, you've got credit for that permanently, even if you can't maintain it.
1: I think some of those work better for that, whereas something like Control, at least 75% of all land tiles... To say that, okay, now even if you don't control 75% of the land tiles in future, let's even just say it's 70%. You control 70% and now you've successfully reached this population of 400 or whatever the number happens to be. I I guess my take on it is that you achieve any two of the following conditions, and they're both true at the same time, which is not to say that, oh, well, I don't control 75% of the land tiles, that's only 70 now, I thought I was going to win with that and reaching a population of 400, but hey, guess what? I can build my 20th wonder right now. There we go, so now I win with the population and the wonders as opposed to the population and the land tiles. And then do you treat some of these differently? Like, if you build 20 wonders
3: and lose them, is that still achieved versus the land tile thing? Well, if the objective was to build
5: them and you were the one who built them and were not countering capturing wonders as being part of that victory, then I guess if you did lose them, you would still have credit for having built them.
1: Based on the way it's worded, yeah. So word choice would be very important here. And then is that actually what we want? Right. Is that more desirable as compared to saying you built them and you still hold on to the 20 wonders when you want to say there, I'm using this as one of my two victory conditions. Yeah. Build and control at least 20 wonders.
3: Yeah. 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 But yeah, I'm not I am not think you shouldn't be forced to maintain your victory condition threshold. With the uh, domination ones, it's kind of academic. If you're on 70% of the, the world's landmass, you're, you're not going to be losing because you've been actively destroying anybody who could have actually stopped you from getting there in the first place. But with some of these others, that could be a relevant consideration. Obviously not the tech ones, but other than that.
1: Congratulations. You researched five future techs. Hey, you were a dick. We're going to take one of your future techs away. Wait, what? No, that doesn't work like that. Stop that. <laughs> well, it and, was and stolen. Another- <laughs> completely stolen. <laughs> it was stolen. They just didn't make a copy. <laughs> they took your original.
5: Another kind of similar idea, which I've pitched before, is you know just introducing victory points which you could achieve throughout the entire game. And in fact, the era score kind of almost could work that way. Like I could see a version of the game where like era points are effectively victory points and you could win the game by reaching a certain threshold of era score. And that would be a kind of a similar thing where the things that you do throughout the course of the entire game are directly contributing towards your victory rather than just, oh, I get to the end game and then I pivot towards whichever one victory condition I want to go for. Not necessarily that that's a better idea. It's another
11: option. You also could categorize the victory conditions into major or minor victory conditions. Like, say, you have these two major ones you have to get and also those two minor ones for the victory, which would simplify it.
1: It would enter into questions of what's major versus minor. How do we observe? How do we measure what's major and minor? Which would probably be based on either relative output or percentage output and also taking into account game speed and map size as as we had said before. But I think kind of the score aspect, because the buzzing also brings that up in the chat where he says, okay, now give a score for each of, of this huge list of conditions. Set a rule as to when the game ends. Add up points. Done.
5: Or the victory is the first person to reach some threshold of points. So say, you know, just throwing out numbers, the first person to 100 points, the first person to 1000 points. And, you know, that could also be something that could affect game lengths, where if you are playing like short multiplayer games where, you know, you don't expect the game to go much longer than the medieval era anyway. Maybe you set that threshold even lower. So the game ends earlier in like the eras as well, because you get to those points quicker. Whereas if you want to make sure that the game actually goes into like the modern and information era and you're researching future texts and stuff like that, you could set that threshold even higher so that the game lasts longer.
1: By achieving by X turn, say as the buzzing suggests to me, is okay, there's your application of a time victory, as opposed to say, as you're saying, Jason, here's now the first person to reach X number of points then turns around and wins the game, my mind's kind of swirling, okay, what kind of notifications are you getting within the game to say that, hey, first person to win 100 points is going to win, you know, this person is at yeah. 90 points, then, you know, you better turn around and do something like
5: that. Well, and you could also have that you, you have to maintain, or you've got maybe then like 20 turns or 30 turns or something like that, where you have to maintain that. So if someone else surpasses you in that
1: time period, then they would win. Oh, okay. Because you talked about using the era score that we've got now in Civilization VI Rise and Fall, and that's, well, you know, once you've got the plus four or whatever, or plus three from being the first to find a natural wonder, I mean, that's not going to go away. You're going to have that plus three, right? however many turns the game still lasts.
5: Right. But you could have a system where, like, say, the first person to reach, and again, I'm just throwing out numbers first person to reach a thousand, and assuming we just use the era score as it's era points or victory points or whatever we want to call them, basically would trigger the end game. And then there'd be like a countdown of 50 turns or something like that for the other players to then try to meet or exceed the number of victory points in order to beat
1: that other player. Hmm. I guess just in my mind, in terms of assigning a score value, and then adding up the score, to me, that was in my notion of saying rather than having a 1,000 tourism a turn, yeah, you're the first person to reach that, for example, that cumulatively you have generated 10,000 tourism over the game. There is one of your two score measures that, okay, rather than, say, having different levels in all nine of these and adding up all of these varying levels to of nine to get to, say, some number, it's, okay, you need to choose any two combinations – and you need to get to 10,000 tourism or 5,000 science output over the course of the game, and then that's tied to, okay, your performance of the game, therefore you've reached those two measures of score, and therefore you've won the game. Although I have absolutely no problem with the game telling you, hey, this person is on track to doing this in X number of turns, depending upon game speed and era, etc., that you might want a little bit more notification to say, well, now is the time to do something. Now is the time to try to push my scientific output, to try to finish all the universities and all my campuses to get to that level before they do. Or, man, I got to go and take around some of their cities so they don't win before I'm able to achieve my two victory conditions, or holy shoot, I need to try to ally with them and make an argument that we're better off winning together because we can win more quickly, win more easily, whatever, then that could certainly be worthwhile. But I think we have al- we could already have the kind of the s- adding up the score embedded within what's been suggested between Supremacy King 2 and what we've been talking about thus far. But it is just one possible way to add up numbers. And again, maybe it's just the wording. I, I hear the word score, and I think about score now, and score doesn't have to be that way. Score could be the way that we're talking about with these new potential victory conditions. It could be, congratulations, you've won the game. You didn't rage quit after, you know, 50 turns. Oh, good for you. You win. The only one on this list that Supremacy Kings suggests about in terms of a measure is, and it kind of came up uh, earlier in the chat from Drusane about, you know, being Scotland and, hey, win the game on turn 50 because I'm Scotland and all the great people. I'm not certain recruiting X number of great people should be a basis for a victory condition. (laughs) (laughs) Your limits to your generation of great people are as variable... As your ability to generate great people whereas the wonders because we have the restrictions on oh I'm sorry you can't build that on this type of terrain there's no suitable location okay because then it's not just a matter of fine I'm just going to found a whole bunch of cities that have a fantastic level of production in this city and they're going to build every wonder under the sun (laughs) <laughs> yeah,
5: even on an easy difficulty setting, building that many wonders is not a, a trivially easy task. Because yeah, you would need a lot of cities with a lot of varied terrain.
1: Because I think about just very purposeful things. I mean, yes, especially when it's recruit just twenty like great people in general. Okay, so you know, like I got three great generals and five great scientists and four great merchants, and you know, we away we go. I mean, it could be that whatever the output from the great people provides or whatever the benefit that they get from that could help fuel one of the other victory conditions, so therefore it would be incidental. But, you know, not all great people are created equally. And uh, even though they would require more or less the same number of great people points as compared to, say, the Wonders, which have the limitation on where you can build them, plus how many hammers it's going to take you in order to construct it, also varies. It The great people just seems to be kind of something that you wouldn't really have to actively think about doing, that you would just be doing that just over the course of playing the game. Without really thinking about it, for the most part. Well, you do
5: have the more affirmative action of the city projects where you're basically trying to spam the great people. Now, with just two victory conditions in this proposal, I think that recruiting 20 great people is one that I don't kind of like. But if it's three or four or something of those, then I think having just recruit 20 great people as just one of those conditions where you still have to achieve two or three others, it becomes a lot more tolerable because you still have to work towards those.
1: It could also have a place in uh, Mike W.'s suggestion if we decided to go with like a major victory condition and a minor victory condition. Yeah, right. And maybe the Great People 1 could match a minor victory condition. And one other thought that I had on this, particularly when we're starting to talk about variables based on game speed and map size and individual preference, you know how when we set up a game, we have certain number of choices on the menu? We don't have a lot of value input choices the game could say okay here are the possible victory conditions in addition to being able to say enable and disable victory conditions you could say and this would be something that obviously would be communicated and you'd be able to tell from save files <laughs> etc that hey control at least and the default would be say 75 percent of all the land tiles you could go in and the game setup up and change that value
6: or just have 200 um,
1: great people control 120% <laughs>
5: of the land. Yeah, pile. I don't know if a value input would be a good idea for that, but I could see maybe having alternate versions of it, like some mutually exclusive options. You can check whether you want it to be 62 thirds or three fourths. Yeah slider would be fine i think yeah depending. i
3: mean, it, I mean it you it might would. But, want to set a min and max threshold yes so right yes like the 10%, general I, or 100. general principle
5: of you get to choose the magnitude of the victory
3: conditions i think is a very good idea yeah because then if they can't figure out how to end a game when it's over maybe we can <laughs> <laughs> that's what i really want to see more than anything else when the game is over it should end soon
2: Like, especially if it's a multiplayer game, can't we put up a vote for the players to say that?
3: Well, when people do PvP, I mean, it's it's unofficial, but that's effectively what happens. But yeah, that would be nice.
2: Especially in our more co-op-ish games, if everybody gets to a point where they think, yeah, I'm done with this. I mean, we usually just do it verbally out loud, but it would be nice if you have something mechanical in the game.
3: And even when you're playing solo, like if you're in a position where victory is no longer in doubt, mechanically in the game, there's too much time difference between when that is reality and when the game makes a victory condition possible. Way too much time. So any change to this, I want to see it a lot closer.
0: Number six, from episode 324, the question of how the game may be changed for better play around the AI is considered.
5: Something that actually I like to talk about a lot. Stringer1313 posted, can we reframe the AI discussion? And it looks like this topic isn't actually about AI, but rather about trying to find other ways to ease the burden of The AI by shifting difficulty and challenge to other aspects of the game, which is something that I've talked extensively about in the past with things like making the map more dynamic and adding more challenges to the map and just more options and user customization to tailor the experience. So uh, I definitely like this idea. In concept, Uh, for example, Stringer points out specifically the colonization game where your competition is not the rival civs, but rather your mother country, which has an inherent and completely acceptable different rule set. I don't know if that's necessarily the best example, because in some cases, colonization felt like it was playing two games where the game just completely changed at the very end to a different game which I didn't like, but principle, the idea could work very well, and colonization is an example of what you can do and what doesn't necessarily work right.
0: I don't think that works well for a Civ title, though, because colonization is about a specific time period inside a specific nation, whereas we're talking about the entire span of history.
5: Right. We had talked about uh, the old Terra map that used to be on Civ Four and maybe on Civ Five, which was basically all the Civs started out on one big continent, and then there was another continent that was full of just nothing but barbarians. So the idea being that when you got to researching caravels, there was actually a new world to explore that was not just populated with equally advanced civilizations. It was populated with barbarians, and context of Civ Six could be city-states, and maybe in a possible Civ Seven, maybe like Matic civilizations that wander around the map which you can then conquer and clear out land and colonize. So there was actually a almost second exploration and expansion phase in the middle of the game where everybody's going to the new world and plopping down their colonies and building new cities and getting new resources and so forth. And that's something that's almost completely absent from civilization as it stands now because when you find that other continent, there's an equally advanced civilization there that is not any different than just fighting another civilization on your continent, except that you just need a navy to do it now. So that would be one way of designing a map so as to provide challenge that isn't necessarily dependent on the other civs playing well. But there's other ideas, too, and other people in this thread have proposed anything.
0: I guess one way you could make the game harder without using the AI is to just spam the world with world-changing events, and that's not fun for anybody. Yeah.
5: Well, it's definitely not fun if they're random. I think if you do a good job of designing systems where you can see these world-changing events coming and prepare for them and plan for them, then that sort of stuff can work. I think just as long as they don't do what Civ IV does, where it's just you get a random pop-up saying one of your grassland tiles has changed to desert. That sucks. But if you actually know that there's some meter somewhere that's telling you that you're polluting the environment, and after you pollute it so much, it eventually turns into deserts, then that could be a system that could work. Things like resource depletion, where, yeah, you've been working that iron mine since the classical era, and now you're in the industrial era, and there's no more iron left to mine. Now you got to go find more.
0: Yeah, those things that we always hated in Civ three,
5: right? But again, I think the issue in Civ three and Civ four was those events were random. If you know it's happening, and if you can control the rate at which it happens, right? Like if there's actually like a bar meter or something on the mine that tells you that it's being depleted, almost like if it's a supply. Like Civ five or in real time strategy games, you have actual supply. Like in Starcraft, you mine your minerals right? And then the minerals are eventually depleted. But you know that that's going to happen. It's not like just some random point in the game, your minerals are gone.
3: What decisions are you making that alter the outcome of the game as a result of this interaction?
5: Well, I don't know. I'm just kind of throwing ideas out, brainstorming.
3: That's the consideration that really matters, right? Like you're, you're being presented with a choice where depending on the situation, you'll make different choices and you'll have, be better off or worse off for the choices you make.
5: Right, and that would be something that the designers would figure out. But just in general, I'm saying that I am at least receptive to the idea that more challenge could be put on the map or on things like the internal domestic management of your empire, because other games have done that. You've got like Stellaris and Endless Space 2 that have faction management, political systems. I've only played those games briefly, so I can't say whether or not those are good systems.
3: I'm okay with this, but let me point out that this is the type of thing that is very difficult on the AI as well. And so anytime you have AI competitors with the same rule set as you, when you add these complications, it actually makes the game more challenging on the AI. A good example of this, not Stellaris, but I'm very well acquainted with EU4, of course. You start adding things like estates, which can give you monarch points, and plus five advisors for better economy management. And it is pretty obvious pretty quickly that good players have much more benefit from these systems than AI. And so in the relative position of player to AI actually grow, there's an even bigger gap as a result of adding these systems that are allegedly challenging. And they are like you need to learn the system and optimizing for it requires you to make better decisions. But ultimately, if you become good at them, then the game itself is even easier uh, to beat the AI. So like these could be useful if you're making good choices with them because the AI is not going to be as good with them.
7: We've had some examples of systems like this in the Civ franchise that have worked reasonably well, I felt, from beyond Earth, where you had the technological discoveries for each new thing that you built, and you eventually got all of them, but when you got them was kind of random. So you knew over the course of a whole game that you were going to get a good majority of these discoveries and you were going to make a good majority of the decisions, but when you got them and when you made them had some randomness in it. And that seems like a level of randomness that could work quite well in other parts of Civ. Like if you've got events that are going to come along out of a big pool and you're going to say over the course of the game, see maybe 50 of the events and there are 100 in the pool. There starts to be some consistency rather than randomness to it, right?
0: Eh, not really. Unless it's something like you get an event every specific amount of time, there's no consistency to it if
7: it's random. So there's consistency across the whole play experience, right? Any individual event I've got to respond to now over the next, say, 10 or 20 turns, it's going to have some kind of impact. The concern we always seem to bring up whenever we talk about any kind of random system is, well, what if one player gets it and the other player doesn't? But if you start to have a lot of events that occur like that, they start to even out between multiple play sessions and multiple players, even though each player's experience is different.
5: You just have to make sure that not one of those things where they're all negative events that just make the players want to rage quit or reload from an earlier save and save scum to not have that happen to them.
3: Uh, In reality, too, the impact from events is almost never comparable across a game. If people say it evens out over time, it's it's just strictly false. It can, but it usually doesn't. And the other thing is, very often, this doesn't have to be the case, but in most cases it is. There's just not any interesting choices uh, regarding these. You're either presented with a single choice or you have a false choice scenario in the vast majority of these things cropping up. So you just comet get a cited. random penalty. Yeah, like comet cited. The problem with that is it not only is there no player choice being made in the context of this event, but it actually levels the playing field. It reduces the importance of other choices made in the game that did matter by a small amount. Or if it's a particularly game-breaking event, it can reduce the importance of the choices by a great amount. But that's rare. In most cases, you're just leveling the playing field a little bit arbitrarily for really no reason. And nobody's really making any choices surrounding these interactions. And, th- and that's why players don't like it. I mean, they might instead in- internalize this argument as, this isn't fair, or this is stupid, or whatever. But ultimately, it- it's just an interaction where the player's choices in a strategy game, where choices are the crux of who wins... It don't matter, and that's annoying.
5: In the uh, chat, Drusane is saying, "I want a system where you can cause pollution that raises water levels and that drops your enemies' coastal cities into the ocean."
6: <laughs> oh, <well. laughs>
0: Flat press I left mean, mouse button to continue
3: in some ways that's actually a better implementation than some of the crap that civ and eu4 and all these games do that's a player choice that matters as lulzy and stupid as that would be in practice in the way the game is implemented now like that's something you know could happen and you could make happen and you could plan against your enemies doing Like i you know, you have a world of inland cities but i want to be
5: able to blow up the nuclear reactor that's on one of my coastal cities so that it irradiates all the fish and sicks a bunch of mutant radioactive whale monsters on my overseas opponents
3: (laughs) that's like a legitimate choice you're making though that has impact on the outcome and your opponents can know and plan against so in that sense as stupid as it sounds it's actually better than a lot of what they put in
5: (laughs) Yes, after you complete the uh, Manhattan Project, there is a random chance that Godzilla will spawn and just wipe everyone out.
3: Rocks fall, everyone dies. Just hit that button.
7: <laughs> <laughs> what about... Okay, but what about if after you complete the Manhattan Project, there's, at some point, an event that occurs, that is, how do we tackle nuclear waste?
3: Uh, what do you do with this event? What are your choices? How does so, it see, impact that's the, the outcome of the
7: I, game? You, you need choices that are relevant and impactful. And I'm going to send your society in different directions.
5: Yeah, it sounds like something that you could maybe be some kind of like UN sort of mechanic where you said eventually after nuclear weapons or nuclear reactors start getting developed, then yeah, suddenly there is the global problem of what to do with all the waste. And then there should be some mechanics where there's some the civilizations get together in a committee. And that's something that I would like to see a little bit more of in the Civ games is more committee diplomacy especially with regard to the World Congress and the U.N., where it's not just something pops up and then we all vote on it, but where there's actually some kind of discussion that happens where you are trying to win other factions over to your opinions and stuff like that. Oh, that would be really difficult to implement.
0: Can we have diplomacy full stop?
5: Well, yeah. Multilateral diplomacy in general would be a nice thing to have if the uh, AI could...
2: Any diplomacy? Not give me 50 things for the five things you want. That would be great.
0: Yeah.
7: I think we probably need a more complicated political system as a whole for that, though, right? Like, we need some kind of concept of diplomatic capital so that trades don't have to be even. Because you want to be able to say, well, I'm going to trade you this thing upfront now for goodwill later. And, like, later on, I'm expecting it to be paid back.
0: Which game was it that had favors and how well those worked out?
5: That was the game that we shall not speak of. Beyond Earth. Yeah. But yeah, no, there were a lot of promising ideas in Beyond Earth, at least I thought so. Just that the the game as a whole was just kind of meh.
12: Yeah.
0: And some of them did make it into Civ Six. So
5: mm-hmm. Yeah, but there is a lot of things that I would not mind seeing Firaxis revisit on like a Civ title proper. And the diplomatic capital idea is one of those. The separating fear and respect, the regard to how the AIs perceive you, is something that I think could have value. But I see other things in this thread about wanting to change victory conditions. One person proposes maybe having mini victories, I guess, that are in each era <laughs> So throughout the game, you're contributing directly to almost like a victory point system.
3: Yes, even more pseudo-victory
5: conditions. (laughs) But I mean, it's an idea.
7: What Siv has is a game-end condition that's perceived as a victory condition. If we got a good underlying score system, which we haven't got at the moment, right? If the score system... But if the score system, if we put some time in and we build it up and we make a score system that actually represents how successful you've been over the course of the game. And then we say when somebody does the space race, like that's the end condition for the game. And now we tot up the scores and we compare the empires.
3: Why would someone who's lagging in score go for a space race then if they would still lose after getting it?
7: Well, presumably you have some kind of big bonus on triggering the victory condition. That's typically what you see in board games. If you're going to be short, even if you do that, then why would you do it? So if you don't do it, then somebody else is going to do it, right? And if you're already behind and the score bonus from doing the science victory is not going to push you up to the top of the board, there's probably very little you can do at this stage to catch up. You're probably far enough behind.
5: Well, short of king making and basically just ending the game so that Another player who you want to win wins instead of that player's rival. Yeah, and that's not necessarily a desirable way to handle it either.
3: Or and I'm like wondering, can you like get conquered in the end game and then still end because you had you, you did
7: well? <laughs> uh, like maybe, but it opens up quite a lot of design space. One of the things we've seen with this. Version of civilization is the idea that civilizations have power at particular historic moments where they were potent, right? Because their units and things all come online at that time. And if you were planning on that kind of arc, there's nothing to say that you couldn't win the game by having the great Roman Empire that rises and still falls by the end of the game. But at the end of the game, you've accumulated enough score that you still had the biggest impact.
5: It almost sounds like you're proposing a scoring system that's basically using the era score as a way of determining winners.
7: Possibly. I think I would want to see something substantially more complicated than era score. Yeah. You probably want some hidden information in there to avoid this idea that, well, I know for certain now if I trigger the science victory, I'm going to lose because such and such has got more points. Like board games deal with it by having, say, a pool of victory points ranging from one to three points that are face down. So you know you've scored this many tokens, but you're not quite certain what the value of those tokens is.
3: Hmm. I don't like hidden information in general when it comes to the rules.
5: Well, not the rules. If he's talking about hidden information in terms of just how close to winning are the other players or just how high their score
3: is. Other yeah, players, but- progress. OK, fine.
7: Own progress. Mm. So you could. Like normally in those kind of games, you can look at your own score chips, right? As you draw them, like you look yeah. at your score chip, you place it face down, so you know what your score is. Okay, what you don't yeah. know for All certain right. is what other people's score is, right. because you don't yeah, know why their chips are where.
3: Information that's available to your competitor should not necessarily be available to you. Yes, that's fine. yeah.
5: Like, for example, in Settlers of Catan, you've got the development cards, which may have things that give you victory points, or the armies that give you the largest army victory point. And you know that you have those, but the other players don't necessarily know that you have those, unless you actually play them from your hand.
7: Okay, yeah. It also opens up more opportunities for things like join victory conditions, because you can tie into things where you effectively have a winner and a runner-up, and you know that you were very close So even if you're not tying your success together in what you did the space race, so you kind of won, but I supported you in it, you can still support the person in that endeavour And score points by doing
5: it. I'd rather see mechanics where the leader and the runner-up are put into conflict with one another, but can definitely see there being room where if they've been allies throughout the entire game, and that's part of the reason why they are the leader and the runner-up, then yeah, they should be able to win together because they dominated the game.
3: That's especially true (laughs) if they're doing it militarily, because if they're successful in that, then they're going to be leader and runner-up. Yeah. As a result of trashing everybody else
0: yeah have you ever had one of those situations where you feel like you know there's something wrong with an idea but you just can't verbalize it i have no idea why this sounds really off to me like it wouldn't work and i can't figure out why in civ victory conditions are pretty final like if you were the first one to go to alpha centauri it doesn't matter anymore what happens on earth because everybody else is left behind and in the military victory if everybody else is dead there's nobody else but you In the diplomacy conditions, you've been elected leader of the world. It doesn't matter what they think anymore because you control everything.
5: Well, unless the leader changes, like just again, comparing to Stellaris, Stellaris has that federation mechanic where the president or whatever of the federation changes every so many turns. So just being elected world leader shouldn't necessarily be the end state of the game. You should actually have to do something with that leadership to prove that you deserve it and then retain it.
0: But the definition of a victory is that you have won. The game is over.
5: True. But in the case of, you use the example of the Alpha Centauri spaceship, just because you launched a spaceship to Alpha Centauri and you started colonizing the planet, or Mars in the case of uh, of Civ Six, you still left the rest of your civilization on Earth. And if somebody nukes the rest of your civilization out of existence the day after you launched your Alpha Centauri colony ship... Uh, you lose,
0: because if your capital gets taken when your spaceship is still in orbit, you're dead. That's how it goes.
5: Right, but you're kind of drawing an almost arbitrary cutoff line. What about your entire civilization being nuked the day after you established the colony? Okay, sure, you've got a colony on Alpha Centauri, but the rest of your civilization's been wiped out back at home.
0: This is a game with arbitrary rules. Well— The victory conditions are arbitrary by definition.
5: True, but because they're arbitrary, we can set them where we want. I mean, I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm just kind of playing devil's advocate here.
7: It would absolutely be a very different kind of Civ to what we have now. The ultimate goal would be different. It would be build a big, impressive empire rather yeah. than race to this victory condition. But we have a lot of problems that result from this race to the victory condition that we are difficult to tackle because the approach we take is race to the victory condition.
5: Right. Uh, Again, you know, I've used this example a couple times in the past. There's a new Civilization board game called A New Dawn that has a series of objective cards that are drawn, and each card has two victory conditions on it. And the winner of the game is the first player to achieve one victory from each of those cards. So you could have a system like that in Civilization computer games where there's a wider variety of conditions that contribute towards victory, but you have to complete more than one of them. So you still have to have a kind of diverse, more balanced empire than just, oh, race through the tech tree, build the spaceship parts, be done with it. It doesn't matter that I was generating zero culture and zero tourism and that the guy next to me is generating all the culture and all the tourism and is one turn away from converting me over to wearing his blue jeans and listening to his rock music.
3: If you force multi victory condition attainment, then yeah, you'll get impressive empires, but you're going to get a lot of the same choices being made all the time, too.
2: And still have plenty of those games where you get exhausted because, you know, you've got it, but you have to meet the technical condition for it.
3: Oh, yeah, this would be awful in that regard, especially if you had a dominant military civ that could shut down other people winning. Then you're really going through the motions a long time
0: because (laughs) even if you kill everybody, you don't necessarily win.
7: Yeah. You could introduce specific sub-challenges that address things like that. Like the, the stalling where you've won, but you've no clear goals, right? You're just waiting to get to the goal. The like goal is you've to go- win.
3: But yeah, but the goal you- is to win. The problem is that the outcome is effectively out of doubt long before the game actually physically ends. That's the persistent problem in Forex and especially in Civ. Games going back to the 90s have significantly shortened this period, but uh, not Civ.
7: So maybe, for example, one of the things you introduce is like you have a civil war, and if you are successful in managing the crisis of the civil war, you score some points towards your victory conditions. What triggers the civil war? Well, you want a series of events throughout the course of the game, right, that would contribute, but you can put them in as sort of shorter objectives than the final goal.
5: Yeah, but this again comes back to the previous issue, which was if you're introducing these sort of more sophisticated political and faction systems, then the AI also has to be good enough to handle them. Otherwise, yeah, sure, you can beat your Civil War rebels, but the other AIs might not be able to, so they're still not a threat to win the game.
7: You probably don't have your AI try and play the same game. You probably have your ai try and do what's relatively fun for the other players in it while being competitive which may mean that instead of having the ai play through the whole civil war scenario you give it some odds based on its flavors of successfully managing that crisis
3: i think the ai as long as it's taking the position of a playable so it has to be playing by the same roles as the player and it has to be trying to win the same victory conditions as the player
0: otherwise it's not a real game it's a simulation
3: Well, that's how Civ is now. You can make a game where it's not multiplayer and the AI is not really a competitor. It's just a flat obstacle. But that's not what Civ is advertising and it's not how Civ is mostly playing. This is a different game entirely if you start giving the AI different rules.
7: Well, the AI currently has different rules. Um, Sort of. it, it, It plays on different difficulty. It gets a different set of modifiers. It almost certainly doesn't interact with things in the same way that humans do.
3: Well, those um, aren't different rules. It has rules. the same victory conditions, the same unit choices, the same era stuff. All that's the same.
5: Yeah, a handicap is different than a rule change.
3: Well, players can get handicaps, too, depending on difficulty right. level. That's just a handicap. You can give that to humans, too, actually, if you want. You can and give you, you humans an
7: advantage. So you get that as an if example, you play on Settler. Yeah. So as an example, in Civ 5, the AI would not attack from out of the fog of war with a mounted unit. If you couldn't see the mounted unit at the end of your turn, it would not charge up and attack you. It would charge up into position but not attack you, but it could not attack. And in Civ 6, that changed. Like they can now charge out of the fog of war and hit you. Okay. So the AI is playing with a different rule set. And the, the idea that you're going to get in any kind of reasonable time frame. That's
5: not a different rule. I think that's just the AI decision-making tree wasn't working correctly in Civ five where the AI wasn't realizing that it could make the attack, because, I don't know, maybe it was deciding whether or not to make the attack before it decided whether or not to move.
0: Yeah, that sounds like an order of operations error.
5: Yeah, that's
3: not a
0: different rule.
7: I'm almost certain that it was a design choice because units charging out of the fog of war and killing your stuff is a bad experience for I mean, players. I,
3: I don't care about overtly bad design choices in particular, though. Like just just the theory that if the AI is a competitor for the same victory condition, it should be playing the same game based on the rules presented. It shouldn't be playing something other than Civ Six. The AI in Civ Six should play Civ Six, not something
7: else then you probably limit your market to the people who are looking for a strong competitive game. I would guess that the market for a strong competitive game is smaller than the market for the general experience.
3: I don't see how somebody else playing the game the same as you is necessarily and not a general experience. Like The only reason so, it doesn't work is because the game is designed and implemented poorly, so it's not balanced. So the incentives are screwy.
7: So if I'm designing an AI and I design it to be ruthlessly efficient and try and win, it's going to give a very different experience to your player than if I design an AI that is trying to be fun and engaging with a human player. What's the difference between these two? Okay, so I've had a student who's been working on the Civ 5 and Civ 6 AIs since Christmas. One of the things that they've discovered is a lot of the decisions that the Civ 5 AI particularly is making isn't necessarily the decision a player would make. You couldn't improve its efficiency by get- getting it to turtle up and tech science because there's no advantage for it getting into an early war. But if you do that and all your AIs behave in a way that tries to win them the game, potentially you've got very little going on in the world. If the optimal thing to do is to hide behind your walls and attack your science as fast as you can, then the world's static and passive and nothing happens from the player's perspective.
3: Okay, and this is where I say that making the AI not play optimally is a cop-out and that the developers failed the design of the game itself. If the optimal strategy from a competitive sense is to turtle and sit there For the majority of the game, you screwed up and you screwed up before you made an AI. But that could
5: also come down to the victory conditions because there are victory conditions that are to
3: turtle. That's fine. But that's the reality. If your incentive is to sit there doing nothing and it's not fun to sit there doing nothing, this is not an AI failure. The AI is not the problem here.
7: Right. So you need the the game
3: to work first. The game should work. And then you have an AI that plays the game. But you don't make the AI play something other than the game because you can't make a game. And that's so, what Civ Six is doing,
7: and I so, really just do not like that choice at all. So, if, if you make a game like of that style and that level of complexity, the idea that you're going to build an AI that is comparable with your top level players is pretty laughable.
3: Of um, course, and then yeah, the know. AI isn't as good as humans. Fine, that's fine, but it should still be trying to win within the context of the rules. Like, it's hard enough to make a good AI without intentionally hamstringing it further.
0: Have you ever played Gal Civ Two? I haven't. I haven't. I would suggest you go and look at what the GalSiv 2 AIs would do on higher levels, because they're pretty dang ruthless and
7: efficient. You can design a game where the AI is effective, but you have to make choices in the construction of your game that support it. Yes.
5: I would like to see for AI intelligence to actually improve with difficulty levels that i like to see.
0: That's a huge
3: burden, though.
5: Yeah, I know.
3: What you're suggesting
5: is not trivial. No, I know.
0: But (laughs) if you were going to do that, you would be increasing turn times dramatically. Possibly. And they're already long.
5: Well, unless you make the AI dumber on easier difficulties and then the turns go faster. But then, yeah, it's that's not necessarily good either. It's terrible. But but you were just saying that in Gal Civ 2 that it sounded like that's what you were saying that it worked is the AIs actually played better on higher difficulties. They were more ruthless. They weren't just getting passive bonuses that make them better at doing the same things that the players doing. So they have more of everything.
0: Well, they did the same thing on lower levels levels as well. But on the higher levels, they also had the bonuses. Oh, okay. Which made them more effective.
5: So they're ruthless and deficient either way.
0: What they did was they looked at the best players on the forums and then figured out what they did and then told the AI to do that. And it worked. It made the game much more difficult and much more fun. But at the same time, you weren't crushed under the weight of everything because it was still doable.
3: And yeah, a lot of this does come down to the design of the game. And this is why I like, give the AI more of a pass than most other players
0: who are complaining
3: about the state of the game in general, is that in the current framework of Civ 6, and even more so in Civ 5 the, the optimal strategy of the design is broken. And in that context, how do you make a good AI when the core premise of the game is off? <laughs> you have to fix the game first before you make the AI play it.
5: So we're basically talking about whether the AI should play to win the game by the same exact rule set or whether the AI should play basically to provide flavor and context to the game. Correct. And one way that you could maybe do both is if the objectives or agendas of the various civilizations are a path to victory. Yeah, that could work. So then – Each individual civilization, and this might also be too complex to code because you've got to write almost unique AIs for every single leader, but you could have a situation where the way that Cleopatra wins the game is different than the way that Teddy Roosevelt wins the game. And the AIs would have to be programmed so that they're playing their civilization towards that civilization's victory objectives. And then the player would also be playing towards that chosen civilization's victory conditions. So instead of just having the static five victory conditions that we have now, there could be more unique sets of victory conditions that are dependent on each particular sieve. And then the AIs are both playing to win the game and playing with flavor
3: The problem with that it's very challenging, though. It's tough. Yeah. To do this, especially because now you're implying a need for balance between victory conditions, which is something civilization has never had in any of its titles. Yeah, I didn't say it would be easy.
0: There's a serious problem with this idea, and that's that you're assuming that all map starts and all game states, you can win in the same way from each spot.
5: Well, not necessarily, because if
0: an AI is pre-programmed to go for a certain type of victory, then you're going to end up with that AI trying to go for a suboptimal victory condition because it's programmed to do it and not taking advantage of oh, I'm on a land map, so I can't kill everybody with land units. I should use naval units.
2: Right. But
5: again, for example, we talked earlier briefly about things like having victory points and goals and objectives and stuff like that. And if we had a situation where, you know, civilization did become like a victory point game, as opposed to a reach the victory condition at the end of the game, then each of the civilization's agendas could be associated with victory points. And then the amount of points that those award could be scaled such that, It's not just a matter of whether or not you complete your objective. You still have to do other conditions to win the game as well.
0: But then you end up with achievement tasks. If you're playing as a civilization that gets victory points from building a bunch of useless units, you build a bunch of useless units and then you delete them and go on to something else. Mm, Possibly. And that's not
7: good gameplay either.
5: Yeah, not necessarily. I mean, either way, it's not a trivial task no matter what you do.
7: There are examples out there of things that do something similar to this. If you take a look at some of Amplitude Studios' stuff, Endless Legend, for example, very similar like game, hex based, but the different civilizations all have much, much stronger flavor. They have very strong, unique abilities that force very specific types of playstyles for them, and each of them is realistically constrained to one or two types of victory conditions based on those playstyles. But there's a lot of replayability in it because of that, and the AI plays them very differently.
0: I don't know. If you have ten factions and they all have to win a certain way, you play all ten factions and then you beat the game.
3: Depends on what you're being presented by the environment. Yeah. And how they are interacting with each other. Like, There's still space for replayability there.
5: And you could have a situation where, using your example, there's ten factions, but maybe there's twenty different ways to win, and each faction is specialized for, like, say, five of those different ways instead of all 20 of them because right now every Civ is just competing for the same five victory conditions so if you have a Civ that like has to go for some subset of those but that possibility space is still large enough to provide a lot of variety and a lot of options, you might still end up with something that works well.
7: Yeah, to put it into it, to give an example and sort of a Civ context, it would be like the idea that in instead of farming for food, you don't access food on the map at all. Instead, you use industry to manufacture food. It would completely change the weighting of different technologies and, and different... City placement. Yeah, and city placement. And that's how their game works. They've still got four resources on the map, but certain factions don't have access to some of those resources or are terrible at using those, but really optimal at using other kinds. And it completely shakes up your understanding of the tech tree.
5: Case in point, I've been playing recently a board game called Star Trek Ascendancy, and there's two factions that are expansion factions. One is the Cardassians and one is the Ferengi. And the Ferengi have a rule set where they literally are not allowed to generate culture. They cannot build the infrastructure that generates culture. The only way that they can earn culture is either by capturing that infrastructure from other players or by trading five production tokens in for one culture token. And then similarly, the Cardassians have a ability that makes it so that they cannot generate production in any of their planets unless they have ships in orbit of those planets. So those really do focus those particular factions towards Specific play styles. The Ferengi are all about having to trade, and the Cardassians are all about conquering planets and then having to spread their military very thin in order to actually administer those planets, whereas the other factions aren't bound by those conditions.
0: But we're talking about Civ here. There's never been a society in the history of mankind that has ever been able to produce food with hammers. And by the same token, we've never had a society that didn't develop a culture of its own.
5: Well, maybe not from the beginning, but by the time you reach the industrial era, there's a lot of industrial agriculture. Game's largely over by then, though. Well,
0: yeah. We still can't produce food with hammers to get a hammer and a bunch of material and hammer it to make it into food. Food is something that comes from something else. We can turn science into hammers, maybe. I mean, it's theoretically possible because we have used science to create production, but we've never used science to create food directly.
3: It deals, but what you're still using base source yeah it, yeah this like, is tough to do and when Pharaxis wants to and I, I think most people also want to have a large number of civilizations available in the game which makes this kind of implementation where each one is drastically different nearly impossible mm-hmm. so the, i think the better play would be to have the map be the source of what causes you to play differently Yeah. Now, understandably, this is hard on the AI, but like I said, as long as the AI is trying to win, I don't care if it's not as good as a player. (laughs) If you wanted to play against players, you can just play
7: against players. We could think of food more broadly, probably, than things we feed our people with, because it's really a growth mechanic for your city, right? So you have to have enough food to feed your current people. Fair. But then your excess food fills up a bar, which presumably represents you've got excess food, so your people are more able to breed, right? Oh, more man. I don't know if we so, want to go
3: down that rabbit hole, though. No. <laughs> okay, you have more food, so you
0: can afford to have more children. right.
7: What if we say we've got a society like, say, the Mongols, where you need to produce enough food to feed your people, and your farming technology is not very good, so you only produce half the food perhaps other people produce, but your military might attracts other clans to join you, and that's your main growth mechanic. Like, you have military might, your military might grows your cities, and your food is just there to stop people starving. But this is a whole different game you're talking about here,
0: because there are no other tribes. You can't... Uh, I I don't know. It just doesn't make any sense within the framework of Civ. I'm presuming
7: that there are people out there that are not represented just by our giant cities. That I'm presuming there are other settlements.
0: Yes, and those are the people that are represented by food growth. Because not only does our food parents. growth mean you can have more people, it also means people can move into your city. If that's
7: the case, we don't have to have food as being the only source of that growth, right? But you have to have the food for the growth to happen. We have to have enough food to support the people who are there and arrive. But we don't have to have this idea that we fill up a stockpile of food.
0: This is the gameplay abstraction. The stockpile of food is the representation of there being enough food extra for people to move in and to have more children. Well, not necessarily that we're putting it all in a granary. What the
5: buzzing is talking about is something that's actually already kind of in the game, right? Because you can have a bunch of cities that don't produce very much food and don't grow and then just build a bunch of units and capture everybody else's cities. And that's where you get all your population from. So he's talking about a system where a civilization actually like specializes in doing that or has some alternative way of getting those extra cities either from other players or from friendly tribes or city-states or barbarians or ancient villages,
0: So basically Venice and Civ Five,
5: Kind of. Yeah, he's talking about something like
0: that. Except with half the food production. Something like that.
7: I'm talking about a system where the mechanic for one civilization doesn't necessarily have to be the same mechanic for another civilization. Maybe one civilization makes all its money from local resources and another civilization only makes its money by trade.
0: But that doesn't make sense in human history because all civilizations pretty much follow the same path. They all make the same things, generally. Well... I mean, there's a lot of variants, but they all basically do the same thing. They all have kids. They all make cities or make settlements or have tribes. It, like, you can't make a game like Civ and have wandering tribes in it. It just doesn't
7: make sense. We've got examples of this, there, and things like the Dark Age policies, right? Like, they've got very strong negatives and very strong positives. And if your Civ came with an ability like that, that you were stuck with the entire game, it would radically change the way you played that Civ.
3: But you've got to put this on, like, 20 different factions and have them interact decently. Yeah. Building this would be extremely challenging.
5: Hmm? Right. This is something that's common in a lot of other 4X strategy games. Again, like, looking at, like, Stellaris and Endless Space and Endless Legend and stuff like that. But from my experience, those games have, like, 10 or 12 factions in them. Or less. They
0: usually have eight yeah. And those games also represent sci fi and fantasy, where you're not talking about a relatively homogenous species of humans.
5: But there's still a wide variety, even in human cultures. Like, for example, civilization, as you already pointed out, doesn't really represent in any way actual nomadic civilizations.
3: So but we're trying to abstract the 6,000 year game of uh, yeah. history. And that makes the individual cultural differences pretty difficult to model. Culture changes a lot over like two centuries, (laughs) which is a couple turns in the early game.
0: (laughs) But if you boil every country in the world down to what they all have in common, they all make things. They all eat food. They all have units of culture that put them together and they all have a production method and making science. They have some other things, too, but those are the ones that are most easily modeled in game. And the rest of them are just human basics. Now, if you're talking about endless space where you've got insect people who don't need to eat anything other than metal, that doesn't fit in a Civ game because there are no humans that have ever lived that can eat metal and live on metal.
7: It doesn't, but we explicitly have in Civ societies that are designed around long distance trade routes, for example.
3: It's just such a small part of the gameplay though. The majority of what you're choosing in Civ is going to be the same, regardless of what Civ you choose across a game, with a few things varying based on their unique abilities or unique units or buildings. But most of your decisions, if you pick a different Civ and play the same start on the same map, are going to be
0: similar. Because every society faces pretty much the same questions.
3: Yeah, I just don't think it's realistic to have vastly disparate abilities in a Civ game. Because of the number of Civs and because we're using humans as a framework, it's
7: impractical.
3: Unless you want to just make six Civs and concentrate on a period or something. Like, you'd be getting pretty far away from what people expect when they play a Civ game that way, though.
0: Like I said, it's a whole different game you're talking about.
11: Yeah. Could be fun, though. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> it just doesn't say it.
11: Number 10 from episode
1: 302. Your top three most wanted gameplay changes, which someone in the thread said, first off, only three. Yeah, well.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> we only have so much time. We
2: don't have all day.
1: Not even for Polycast. I know. I know. Number 9 from episode 301.
2: I'm afraid to under the form name of Mackie. Or is it Mackie? Yeah, Makalua. That's mine. Ma- yeah. I'll say it for you because people go go like, see the name and go, how the hell do I pronounce this? Makalua. I do not live in a salt mine, unlike Phil.
11: <laughs> <laughs> I am the salt mine.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Apparently.
11: Number eight from episode three hundred and twenty-five now Phil they're still people they're just dead
3: people it's debatable at one point when you break it down to its constituent parts does it stop being the thing it originally was Dan
1: well yes it's no longer a live person it's it's a dead person and then it's parts of dead people if you break it down any further but it's still eventually it's just atoms
3: and then not all atoms are people (laughs) even atoms that were once part of people they can become equal they can become equally scattered atoms if you break them down in there yeah it's deep i know yeah sometimes the coach should tell us in advance how many we we're gonna do and i'd remind them that we're like 60 cent complete and you'd have people like throwing expletives at me it's fantastic
2: <laughs> why does it not surprise me to filter all that
11: yeah. even at a young age
2: <laughs> trolling trolling trolling
11: number seven from episode 301 you can't see it because this is audio only, but my
1: eyes did, I think, at least a good 180 roll at that. <laughs> there was some quality side eye going on right at that moment. Uh-huh. <laughs> if you were able to incorporate quality side eye strategically high into the conversation, <laughs> I will invite you back on the show.
2: <laughs> oh, Dan, you were probably going to do that anyway.
1: That is a challenge, and it is 3am, so I am feeling a little bit perky, so I might just go for it.
11: Number six, from
1: episode 303. Jason, how do you feel about breaking up dan Jin, anyway?
6: <laughs> <laughs> uh... <laughs> it needed to be done.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
4: yeah, the time and the place.
5: In order to maintain diplomatic
1: relations, I have no comment. Mega-Dan? Thank hey you, That's interesting. Sounds better than Dan Bear, I'll tell you that. Oh, no. Dan Bear is good, too. <laughs>
6: <They're>
3: Luckily, you <laughs> the, the stream.
0: <laughs> Number five from episode 325 much to consider with respect to what difficulty level means for Civ 6 and the series beyond.
1: Difficulty level in Civilization 6, DD is too easy, says a clue without, but if you added eight more difficulty levels, the game would still be too easy. There are many problems, but these include AI bonuses are heavily front-loaded, so once you overtake the AI, it can't catch up. And yes, AI referring to artificial intelligence in a single-player context. The AI therefore can't threaten you beyond the early game, doesn't really compete with you otherwise, and can't even threaten getting a victory before you, which would force you to try stopping the AI instead of just focusing on your own victory condition. Second, it is not hard to manage your empire, and indeed is relatively easy to optimize your empire and very strong to do. There are no consequences for spamming cities or campuses or for chopping all your resources. I'm not saying you should be punished for these strategies, but playing in an extreme way doesn't have any knock-on consequences which balance out the advantages of these strategies. This makes these strategies sort of boring. They don't create any interesting decisions, but all make them powerful because there is no downside. And... Third, nothing changes, so you're never pulled off course. I'm not advocating natural disasters or random number generators, but just an observation. After an early land grab, your empire basically never faces any challenges beyond timing of swapping certain policy cards and maybe some limited competition for great people. The AI's poor use of naval and air may be part of this problem, as if the AI could use this to challenge you, and because you can't pre-build some naval and all-air units, defending sea and air attacks would potentially force you to change plans. But fixing that would only fix part of the problem. I don't think nerfing, chopping, or Magnus, or having a better AI is going to fix Civ's lack of challenge. The current lack of challenge is actually a more complex problem, which is compounded by Firaxis's decision to make all strategies viable and therefore not punish any particular types. To be clear, I don't think don't punish any specific playstyles" is probably right, and don't punish wide is certainly right, but it limits the scope of the game to actually challenge players. This is not a topic... That is unique to the show, as in we have not talked about this before, but the whole premise, instead of TLDR, this is TLDL, too long didn't listen. Deity is too easy, but if you added eight more difficulty levels, the game would still be too easy. Number one, the AI is pretty dumb. Number two, easy to manage your empire. And three, beyond the early game, nothing changes. You lock into a particular set of steps and you're on your way to victory, whatever victory type that may be. Yeah, so I
5: agree with most of these points, but I do want to make one small little tweak to the phrasing. I wouldn't necessarily say that deity is too easy. I would say more that the problem is that deity forces you to play in very specific ways and if you are very good at playing the game in those ways, then it does become very easy. For example, it often forces a lot more military action and things like that. So if you prefer to play the game more as like a you know, turtle building an economic empire, then you are going to have a lot of trouble.
12: I agree. Uh, well, that you get stuck in a playing in a certain specific way it becomes routine and inflexible and boring. And then people just get bored of doing the same exact strategy each and in- every single time because they have to do it that way to beat the ai because all it has is bonuses it doesn't know how to use the resources or functions in the game which was also brought up about the emergencies because i remember in civ 2 when i got too powerful all the ais would suddenly join forces to take me out and say oh you're too powerful so all the ais have banded together to fight you but that emergency in civ 6 is not the same functionality it doesn't seem to work the same
13: I would definitely agree with you. The emergencies instead of six seem to be a little bit more, I guess I'd call them piecemeal, where you never know exactly who's going to jump in and you don't know exactly when they're going to fire all the time. I mean, sometimes you're like, oh, took a capital, it's probably going to fire. But I think another issue is that it's the sort of idea of once you get the ball rolling, once you start snowballing, it's a little bit hard to figure out how to balance that, especially since they've gone away from the Civ 5 wide penalty, which was not really popular, but it did its job, which gave you something to struggle against as you grew, which I don't think is existing here in Civ 6 as much.
1: Otherwise, in the thread, and it's kind of going back to, again, the same themes here, which regards to the artificial intelligence and its ability to play the game, to understand the game in order to play the game, and also a question of the approaches that you need to take on difficulty levels under the assumption that you are playing these higher difficulty levels because you are looking to win some formal type of victory condition. On the case of the AI, Traveling Canuck chimes in, it's okay from my perspective from the development team games, to wait until players figure out the best way to play the game before adjusting the AI strategy. Second, the game rules aren't finished yet and won't be until the final expansion is announced, so teaching the AI to play interim rules may not be worth the effort. What I wonder is, will the development team ever decide to teach the AI how to play the game so that it has a reasonable chance to win? Do they care about this and they're just not there yet? Or do they not care and will need to rely on unpaid volunteers to teach the AI to play Unpaid volunteers, quote-unquote, I'm pretty sure is a not-so-subtle
12: reference to the modding community. (laughs) This may be a dead horse comment, but the expansions should not be the fixing of a game. Those should be expansions. So the AI should know how to play right now, and then any expansions will just be expanding on what's already there, not fixing it. I agree. Um, we should not be playing the game for two or three years or however long it takes right. for all the expansions to come out with a non
5: functional AI. I really think that I would agree with Canuck on that one.
8: Definitely not. Like, look I'm, at uh, Air Power, it still doesn't work. It's for second anniversary almost.
1: I mean, to me, teaching the AI to play interim rules would be rules while the game is still in development and it hasn't been released yet, which could include, okay, teaching the AI to play, say, the interim rules of whatever expansion, if there's an expansion currently being designed. What it is that it's doing at that point may in fact be premature, but it's still something that, yes, you would want to put into the game, because if you're only teaching the AI to play the game two to three years out, then by the time Civilization VI is fed accompli, it's not like the expansions are going to change absolutely everything. So if the AI has some understanding of base mechanics, and then you go and modify those mechanics, then you can teach the AI to play to those modified mechanics, and you don't have to teach them from nothing. Right? There's a very big difference to saying, okay, there's one challenge when it says, I don't know how to prepare this food. There's another question when it's, I don't know how to turn the stove on. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay, and trying to teach the AI how to turn the stove on after you have multiple dishes that can and should be made, and you want to be able to perhaps change what it is that you are doing with that food, depending upon the course of how the meal is progressing, you know, the food being your mechanics and the specific strategies and the meals, you know, the victory conditions, then that's asking the AI to try to do a lot. And that's asking a lot on the developers to try to be putting that together when they're trying to make additions to the game rather than also trying to start from zero when we as the yes exactly thank you doggy when as we as the players are also trying to figure out i'm sorry how are we supposed to do this again as for the DD comments shaka khan, shaka khan uh people who play <laughs> and yes that was definitely required people who play exclusively DD level often pride themselves on having a better understanding of the game and more of a wealth of experience than people who routinely play on low levels but they, formerly I, don't have a better understanding of the game, but rather a better understanding of what the optimal choices and exploits are, and have mastered how to get the most of them. This leads to a better understanding of one specific way of approaching the game. After winning four, five, or six consecutive deity games, the game certainly wasn't fun anymore, and I was just doing the same thing over and over. For me, playing creatively is more important than playing optimally, which is part of the reason I usually play around Emperor now, plus or minus one level. I believe there's still more to explore in this game, and we're not going to find these revelations by playing the game at the highest level the same way every time.
5: Yeah, I feel very much the same way. I play most of my games on Emperor as well. I've tried a few games on Immortal. I can play on Immortal if I someone like put a gun to my head and made me. Uh <laughs> But I don't enjoy it. I don't like the AI starting with the extra settlers and they're immediately forward settling you. And, you know, you have to do nothing but pump out units for like the first like 80 turns of the game. And so I typically like to prefer to play on the uh, Emperor difficulty just because I feel like it keeps more play styles and strategies viable, especially with regard to some of the, the civilization's unique abilities. You know, I like to be able to use my civilization's unique abilities when I'm playing as them. And when you're playing on immortal and deity like sometimes you just can't it's just not practical to do or it actually is harmful for you to deviate from those very specific routine steps in order to to utilize your uniques as a
13: solidly middling player um i would say definitely i usually play on uh like king or around there this was sort of this topic kind of surprised me it was like oh i didn't think it was too hard i can't even get past you know emperor or something like that
5: Every game but, has this part of the community, though, where there's the people who are the elite players that complain about it being too easy, no matter how hard the game actually is, or no matter how much the game might even cheat. Yeah.
13: yeah, I think there's something to be said, like, the way that the AI does get its bonuses, the way that it is a little bit sort of unsatisfactory with that sort of just flat production and gold and extra settler at the beginning, it's a little bit hard to sort of, uh, It's not. it's not an increased difficulty that you relish, it's just sort of something that's there.
1: I think when it comes to difficulty level, if the AI knew how to play the game right now, and this is setting aside, but the game shouldn't play this way, or the game has this deficiency. Well, if the AI knew how to play the game, and of course, how to play the game should be whatever the difficulty level happens to be, how good does the AI know how to play the game? How aggressive are they going to be in pursuing those active strategies? How well are they going to be able to react to a certain situation? So you could feel like when I'm moving up in difficulty level, it's not just a matter of having to micromanage very specific steps on the higher difficulty level. I can still do what it is that I want to do, but I'm going to encounter that AI resistance. That resistance is whatever the AI is doing separate from me those things that it's doing within its empire before it meets me and after it meets me and it's still kind of off and doing its own thing. I'm not really challenging that. But as soon as I start challenging either directly through conflict or I'm challenging it through culture or tourism or science, that it's reacting in a way that I feel like, oh, it wouldn't have been as aggressive in responding in that way. There's more opportunity on the lower difficulty levels in order to recognize I should be doing something a little different, as opposed to simply being, you know what, rather than figuring out how to manage your money better, we're just going to give you more money. And it's always been in civilization how they treat the difficulty levels of the AI. The AI is just spending its money. And on the higher difficulty levels, they just get more money up front and don't learn how to spend their money. The penalties that they get for not spending their money very well is considerably less. And I think that that's not a surprise that this is the case, because developer Firaxis Games said this around the time Civilization 4 came out, that they are not building artificial intelligence to win Which, when you're not building an artificial intelligence to win, and you've got the set victory conditions, then teaching the AI to play, and to play the game well, does not sound like it's a priority. And that, of course, is definitely open to debate and reconsideration. But knowing that, it would be nice that rather than all of these front-loaded bonuses, that somehow the AI, if it doesn't play better, then it doesn't play as badly. And (laughs) you don't feel like the only reason that you're moving up in difficulty level is because you want to punish yourself because the AI is going to get things up front that you are not going to get. And I think that's what gets a lot of people questioning difficulty level, questioning that doesn't matter how many levels of difficulty, going back to the original post from A Clue Without, Doesn't matter how many difficulty levels you add, when the approach is this, you're just going to be getting more of the same. So perhaps it's a little bit on us as players, seeing as how these are the things that we can change, to find ways that we can play more creatively rather than optimally. We can find our own measures for how well we are doing in the game, like being the first to accomplish this or the first to accomplish that. Or, dare I say it, to the majority of people who play Civilization and don't play multiplayer, There are a number of multiplayer leagues that are out there. I would suggest looking into those. I mean, yes, you could just do the random matchmaking that you can go through the game, but that kind of seems like, you know, getting something for free with very little investment and, you know, you're going to get your return on investment or lack thereof. But find people that you can play with and you're going to eliminate... I think a lot of that the opponent doesn't know what it's doing because you're playing with a human player who, well, even if they don't know how to play the game, they're probably going to learn from playing the game more in a multiplayer situation than they would in single player. If this is an issue for you, and if it's not an issue for you, then just continue doing what it is that you're doing, and onward we go. One thing that I do want to point out is that I'm not really aware of too many
5: uh, actually maybe not even any games where the difficulty actually like improves the ai's ability to play the game like its knowledge of the game i think i've maybe heard of some games where on like really easy settings like the ai will deliberately make dumb moves like chess Um, maybe yeah like like in a computerized chess game or any computerized board game but i'm not so sure that i've ever heard of games where they actually like, teach the AI different rules to play by based on the difficulty setting. And one of the struggles that Firaxis would have with that is they'd have to do more between turn processing, which means that the turn times would probably balloon very rapidly and even more if you've got more SIVs in the game. Now, personally, I wouldn't mind if they said that out front, like if there was like an option to say okay, are you okay with having longer load times if it means the AI will go through some extra logic and potentially play better? I would probably enable that setting if it were available. But one of the other things that I think Firaxis could try that I don't think they've ever experimented with is maybe putting in place handicaps for the player instead of just giving handicaps to the AIs. So thinking something along the lines of, and I've, I've written and talked about this before on the show, of uh, something along the lines of a set of handicap sliders for both the human player and the, the AI player, similar to what you might see in a sports game. So you can custom tailor what elements of the game you're good at and what elements of the game you want to be more difficult. So say, for example, you're very good at powering through the tech tree. Well, maybe you can tune your tech tree progress lower and tune the AIs up or, or vice versa. Because one of the major frustrations that I have with the high difficulty settings is they also dramatically change the pace of the game. Because when you're playing on Emperor above, you've got things like the AIs are hitting the Renaissance. I've seen as early as like 600 BC, which I would like to get rid of stuff like that. I would rather that I be slowed down on the higher difficulties rather than the AI being sped up so that the pace of the game still feels about the same as it should be.
1: And I think in a situation like that, the player, in addition to having the control to set that, if they wanted to set the control, um, there could be, you no know, recommended settings and people could just say, fine. But if you could tweak that for yourself, then, as you said, you've got a measure of control. There's also a measure of challenge for yourself when you have control over the handicaps that you would be receiving and the AI is receiving. There
5: could still be set difficulty settings where it just sets all those handicap sliders at specific values based on the setting. And in fact, I think you can already pretty much do this by going to the INI files and adjusting a lot of the properties in there. So I don't see why
1: Fraxis doesn't just expose those to the game settings UI when you are launching a game. I expect that's not happening in some respects because, and as people from Firaxis have said, including Sid Meier, like, this is intended for mass consumption. And probably the reasonable perception is that the majority of players don't want such a thing, so why would we invest the time in presenting that? But if we as fanatics can send that <laughs> message that, you know what, you can still gain new customers and keep older ones like us as well, then I think that would be advantageous. And seeing as how the game is about customization, this is a way to customize and have it be right within the game's user interface itself at set up, as opposed to like you're saying, Jason, it's, you can already do it. It's just you have to know to go into the INI file and actually feel comfortable in doing that and making that. And you can do that, but it's, it's cumbersome. And if you just kind of put that up front in the game, plus the game gives you some recommended settings, maybe you'd be able to save your configurations. Like, okay, here's what they consider to be a standard Emperor level, but this is the Emperor level difficulty that I want. Go ahead, save those settings. You can have your own INI files that you could save and load and swap out depending upon your mood and what challenge that you would like to have. I think that would, you know, allow it so that it's not so much worried about the AI playing the game as it is your playing the game with the AI because it's, it's, it's something that would already be accessible to the player and something that we could control and Yeah, barring any major advancements in computing technology in the near future, we're still going to be better. We humans are still going to be better at adapting to particular circumstances than any AI is going to be, even if they had infinite number of time, money to develop these things.
5: Well, and it's still going to be bound by the programmer's ability to write good logic to play the game. You know, they can spend as long as they want processing, but if the logic behind the scenes is not very good, then it's still not going to lead to better results. And so the AI programming is still going to be the most difficult problem to solve.
1: And there's no question that as the game goes on, as you're progressing through the game, there are more things that are happening on the map, more decisions that have to be made, more processing time, and the AI fumbles with that. And I think it's that combined with just how the game is set up in terms of it's really important to have that early land grab. And then once you've got that early land grab, it's like hey, I've got oil. I've got all the oil I'm possibly going to need for my tanks. Why should I have to go out and settle something else, especially when it's going to, all that time and resources I'd be spending to go and settle that spot. no, No, that doesn't make any sense. So I think if we combine all of this conversation with how the AI is designed to approach the game, the human's ability to interact with that, plus what the actual game mechanics themselves are, if all of these three things are done in tandem, then I think we can progress considerably what the experience of Civilization is, which is obviously still a pretty good experience because we're at the sixth mainline iteration of the game, and it's been more than a quarter of a century, and these games are still in development, so they must be doing something right, but just because they are doing something right doesn't mean it can't be better. I wouldn't say it's on us, but I think we as fanatics are in the best position to make the best arguments for not only why you should do this, but also offer suggestions as to how. I mean, Fraxis and 2K would go ahead and release some of those DLLs and make it available to modders who can then translate it into English for the rest of us plebeians who play this game. Then we can offer even more detailed insight, and you know what? Our price is pretty good. We only would expect kudos and compliments. You don't have to actually pay us money. We're kind of an untapped resource, I think, in a lot of respects in that way. Although I think my favorite post from this thread just kind of intermixed with all the quote-unquote serious conversation, rightly so. Archon Wing, I lose games on Emperor. Don't tell anyone. Well. <laughs> <laughs> I've lost a few games on Emperor myself. Oh, yeah. It
13: happens. There was something interesting that I found in this discussion and in the initial post, which brings up oh. this idea of...
1: Sorry, I just thought you were saying, after all what we just talked about, I actually found something interesting in this conversation. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Please do enlighten us. <laughs> Wait for Dan. You said something
5: interesting.
13: In the original post, they bring up the idea of to play at these high levels, it's doing sort of thing really well, and that you, you do that one path. And they bring up this idea of they don't want to bring back this sort of, you know, random events like they had instead said 4 And that's sort of an idea that I think It has merit, but I know it's very sort of polarizing. You either love sort of random events or you hate random events in a game like this.
5: I was actually going to bring that up, too, because one of the advantages that having not necessarily random events, I I think the randomness is what screws a lot of people up. I think if you designed it so that they are procedural events, right? right, like things that happen for a reason, whether they're positive or negative, I think that's a lot easier for the players to digest and handle because there's consequences for your actions you go back to uh, Civ 3 and Civ 4, you had things like pollution and global warming and stuff like that that were a direct result of you building dirty industry. You know, same thing in like a city builder game. You build too much industry, they create pollution, the pollution gets into your water, your people start getting sick, they start dying. A cause or that's an effect of something that you did. So I think if they can come up with things where they don't feel like it's just something that comes out of nowhere and is completely arbitrary, where there's a good reason for it to happen, then I think that could possibly be successful. And one of the advantages of having a system like that is that if you have random or procedural events that can throw a wrench into the player strategies, that can take a lot of the pressure off of the AI to play the game well, because there's other challenges and other hurdles that the player has to get over. The AIs might have to get over some of them too, but part of the difficulty setting could be that, oh, the AIs get fewer events that happen to them, or at least fewer negative ones, and maybe you get a little more, or vice versa. And that could take some of the pressure off of the AI to be good if you're actually playing against the board as well.
13: Yeah, so sort of to borrow a term from completely different vein of video games, to take some of the onus off of the PvP and put some on the PVE.
5: Right, and I think Beyond Earth tried to go in that direction a little bit—the aliens and the miasma and stuff like that. I don't think it just quite went far enough that it didn't yeah. do too many interesting things for the entire duration of the game. It was still a very similar problem that you know Civ Five and Civ Six had, which is once you get over that very early hurdle, all those front-loaded challenges, the rest of the game is smooth sailing.
8: Yeah.
0: Number four, from episode 305, would giving Civilization VI coast tiles an extra hammer of production be a sufficient improvement?
2: Should coast tiles be modded? There's even a little pole. Oh, this is why. This is why Dan picked this thread. There's a pole at the top of the thread. Oh, boy. Ah, well, it's it, currently it's sitting with 48% saying coast tiles are fine the way they are. 26 saying they suck, but they wouldn't change. And then, only 25% wanting to change it. I don't know if that's specific to somebody's proposal in there, but uh, who started this thread? Marigoldran. Actually, oh, doing their own modding things. The reason they did it is because an unmodded coast tile is even worse than a desert tile. Even as Indonesia coast tiles are still pretty bad since you can't chop them or build districts on them. It just happened to be less bad, air quotes, than anyone else. Ah. Uh, he thinks they're total waste. I, well, I don't know if they're total waste, but I wouldn't mind a little more yield in the coast tiles.
5: I just want to make sure that I'm remembering correctly. Desert tiles produce zero yield throughout the entire game, right? Yeah. yeah. Unless, Unless you throw a district was... on them. So I have to say that coast tiles being worse than
2: desert is
5: kind of subjective because... The, the- mathematics the-
2: wrong. <laughs>
5: Well,
2: wrong. You get at least one food and one gold out of a coast tile currently.
3: Right. It really depends because you get some adjacency and you have some wonder eligibility for possessing a desert. But you also do get non-zero yield from coasts that you can boost. A couple posts down, Victoria gives a list of ways you can improve coast tiles. And while while it's pretty difficult to make them legitimately useful tiles to work, you can, in principle, make them at least tolerable. So if you make them too much stronger, then they can become very dominant, I would imagine.
6: Yeah,
5: I would be mostly in favor of not necessarily changing the base yield of coast and ocean tiles, but more like just introducing and adding in more water-based resources and features for you to actually work so that there's productive tiles
8: on the coast. I think the way that coastal tiles are made today are fine. To have the ability to be able to fish every tile all the time, I think will unbalance
7: yeah, I think they're in a much better position than they used to be. Now we have things like reefs adding a little bit of production and sea resources seem to be a lot more common than they were back at launch. And between like harbor districts and rainer uh, and the fisheries, I think they're never going to be your most productive cities, but you can certainly make a decent job
12: of having some production and commerce in a coastal city now, I think. Now you mentioned
3: production, and that's one thing I wouldn't mind seeing returning. We haven't really had coastal cities be productive, quote unquote, so to speak, regardless of what you choose in Civ 4 And they worked in Civ IV because of the whip with the slavery civic. I uh, don't think we need the slavery civic back in the game for a few reasons, but uh, having some way that at least if you have the right resources on the coast or something to make them a bit more productive. I don't know if the game needs it, but it'd be interesting.
5: Yeah, I, I think my biggest issue with the vanilla Civ Six came out, I did not like coastal cities at all because of the lack of productivity. And I, I always felt that what they should have done was just put more production in the harbor and the harbor buildings, like maybe even giving the adjacency bonus gold and production.
6: Oh, yeah.
5: Or something like that. You know, without having any infrastructure, I don't think coast should generate any production. But I think harbors are both commercial structures and industrial structures. So either it should provide both benefits or maybe there should be some kind of like specialization path for harbors where you choose which direction you want to go with it. Kind of like how the encampments have the barracks or the stable. Maybe the uh, harbor commercial specialization path or maybe like a warehouse or something like that that gives you production or something like that and takes you down a production specialization path. So you can choose on a city-by-city basis whether you want this to be a commercial harbor or an industrial harbor. I like or, that. Or, you know, heck, maybe they're just two separate buildings and you can do both in the same city.
2: Would you add a military type of thing for that if you wanted to have one particular harbor be like your warship harbor or something? Maybe. Because usually when I do in Navy, I usually mostly produce it out of one city. Maybe I buy some in other cities.
5: I mean, I would kind of feel like if you're going to go down a industrial specialization for the harbor, then that should probably basically go into the military, because that's probably the reason you want production, is so that you can build navies, because there's only like, what, three wonders in the entire game, four wonders that are coastal, so it's not like you're going to build a crap ton of wonders or something like that that you're going to need all that production for. Uh, Even
2: if you had something small to add to the harbor, like a warship dry dock or something like that, to slightly specialize it as a...
5: Yeah, I kind of feel like that's one of the big missed opportunities with the districts so far in the game is that they don't have any ways for you to specialize the individual districts like they have the barracks and the stable for the encampment. I think they should have done more of that sort of thing for all the districts. I think that would have been cool. Give you more choices and options for how your city's going to grow and develop. And I think the harbors are a really good example of how that could
12: be done.
7: Yeah, I've seen the the same thing for the aerodrome as well, because is it a tourism booster or is it an airplane production booster? That would be a good fork for the aerodrome district, I think, to choose what you want it to do. But other
5: than that, I would say that just adding that water park district has, I think, boosted the appeal of coastal cities a lot, because now there actually is some infrastructure that you can build on the water. And one of the big problems in Vanilla was there was the harbor, and that was it. So building on the coast just meant that you had that many fewer land tiles on which to build districts. Now that there's at least one more district that you can build on the water, that I think makes a big difference.
3: Sure, you really get to work all your tiles anyway, though, to be fair. It's quite difficult uh, for most of the game where it's relevant to grow your city sufficiently where you even work half of them.
5: True. It was just that in most cases, the land tiles were the ones that you didn't want to build districts on because those were the ones that actually had decent yields on them. That's
3: true, yes. Whereas
5: it'd be really nice if I could build more of these districts on the water that I don't want to work because they generate crappy yield. (laughs) That's true. But I would be more in favor of the water tiles providing more food rather than production and just being something that helps your city grow really large and be a commercial gold-generating powerhouse.
0: Number three. From episode 319, incorporating regions into Civ could make for an improved capacity of game choices.
2: Supremacy King 2 started a thread. He had this idea, probably not new, where the game could automatically group hexes together to regions at the start of the game. I mean, it already does that for continents, so...
5: Yeah, one person on the thread already pointed that out. It's basically just you have to recurse. (laughs) Do it again.
2: Do it again. Regions within the continents. Something big enough for about two or three cities-ish, something like that. I don't know if it'd be that big considering some of the map sizes, but...
5: Yeah, I don't think the maps are big enough for this to really work. Again, if the maps were big enough where cities were, like, ten tiles apart instead of four tiles apart, having large regions would, I think, make more sense.
2: Yeah, on the smaller map sizes, you just have to use the continents, basically.
5: Right, on the smaller map size, a region would be, like, a triangle of three tiles.
2: (laughs) Yeah. It's like, uh, no? (laughs) But there are some interesting ideas he had about what you could do with them. Maybe you could apply this to continents as well. Is that CIS could claim adjacent regions as their own before settling cities there. On a bigger map, yeah.
5: I like that idea in general, with
1: or without regions.
2: Territorial claim units. Yeah.
1: <laughs>
2: Put a flag in it. It's part of Britain now.
1: Man, I don't know. Don't people say civilization is Eurocentric enough? Law. Lol.
2: Oh, excuse me. Put a flag in it. It's Australia now.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I'll show you colonial conquest.
11: Look, if you don't have a flag, you're not really a country.
5: At the very least, having these regions would better define what is considered, quote, near. So things like don't settle near me. I don't think the game ever defines how far away near is. So if near were just a region adjacent to one of your cities, then at least we'd finally have an in-game definition for what
3: the heck that word means. Even though it doesn't matter in practice, because when you settle your second city in any direction, someone complains. But no, okay, sure.
1: <laughs> as long as whatever region you are claiming as your own, as long as you have taken an action. For example, there's a strategic resource there, and to tie into a concept that we used to have. can't even believe I'm mentioning Civilization 3, but I am. Colony? Yeah, I put a colony in here, so now I can claim this region for my own, as opposed to, Hey, I just discovered this region. Hey, I'm the first to discover it. Hey, it's mine. Because then there's also the talk about if a civ settled in a region claimed by another civ, it could trigger a Cassius Belly. Hey, I claim that on turn four because I discovered first and you settled there. Now I get a Cassius Belly because you've actually done something. As long as it's qualified with something like that, as opposed to just go ahead and start I claim this, and I claim this, and I claim that, and I claim that. Because then it yeah. just sets up I, some my, ridiculousness my, afterwards. Well, that's all.
2: Mine, mine, mine. Of course, hey, the I only thing this? with that yeah. would
11: be you'd have to script it so that if you didn't know somebody else claimed it because you hadn't met that sieve? How would that work?
5: I don't know. Maybe running into terrain that another sieve has already claimed would automatically introduce you to that sieve.
11: Yeah, because then they'd block out the entire region, and you're like, wait, what...
5: Well, it'd have to be tied to well, some kind could of action, and, and I was thinking that that could be maybe a very useful function for scouts and reconnaissance units to have, where the scout yeah. explores, and then it maybe has a number of charges similar to a uh, builder. and Yeah, it gets bring in
3: the use. Beyond Earth mechanic, yes. <laughs> was that in Beyond Earth? Well, they had charges on the exploration units for picking up those pods. Oh, right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. In but- this case, you, you have a claim limit. Yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, that's...
11: perfect. So, yeah, yeah, I, I had the just, same thought. So just nice. adapt the Stellaris turn to claim unit thing.
3: There would probably
5: have to be some kind of decay mechanic on that so you can't just claim a space on the fourth turn of the game and then not settle it until like 100 turns in.
3: I mean, people can eventually just say, no, screw you, I'm settling here anyway because I don't like you.
5: <laughs> yeah, there would either have to be a decay period where your claim is no longer valid and it literally just goes away, or a period after which point the casus bell eyes or whatever no longer apply if players settle there. Because it's like, you didn't do anything with it, so we're settling there now.
2: You're going to get better
3: no- CBs eventually anyway.
2: What's well, another thing on the list here that Sis could agree to give up a claim to region exchange for gold or other diplomacy things. So here, yeah, have and- this relic and can have this region.
5: I wouldn't mind also just to extend that to actually be able to trade your territory with other civs, especially after a war, instead of having to capture their city to be able to just say like, hey, we want that tile that has that iron on
1: it. Give us that and we'll make peace. That would be fine. If you're going to claim a territory, you need to have some kind of presence there. Now, you could have that be a colony, and you could choose that colony to remain undefended by a military unit, or it could be, I've claimed this region, I am going to have the expense to construct the unit, and it's going to stay in that territory as opposed to continue to explore, I'm going to pay the maintenance on that unit, which could then prompt someone to say, would you give up your claim to that region, I'll do that in exchange for gold, or okay, I'm going to go ahead, and I'm going to settle here anyway, even though you've claimed it, and then you can decide whether or not, am I really going to defend my claim? If so, how am I going to defend my claim? Is it going to be outright war? Are we going to tie it back to some kind of economic sanction? I know I'm getting a little bit on a tangent here, but the important thing to me is, if you're going to claim it, it's not just because I was here, I've claimed it, and by the way, if you decide that you want this, I know we just say it could trigger a Cassius belly, so long as it doesn't automatically create a, a Cassius Belly for someone just because you were there first and to claim it, and then you don't do anything about it.
3: I think you're putting too much value on a Cassius Belly. Like, in early game war, you can just declare anyway. Like, Ancient Era, you can just declare surprise war for no penalties That's other true. than the risk of losing.
5: Maybe uh, so having like-
10: claims...
3: Could cost you like culture or something like
5: that each claim you make costs you like one culture per turn or something and that uh maybe scales Mm -hmm. up as the game goes on so there actually is a cost to having them and not doing
3: anything with them
2: and then then you you just wouldn't make them and then just piss
1: people
3: off settling and sure they got a cb on you but who cares they can declare on you anyway so you just violate the claim screw them
1: i realize that but i don't want it just to be in the game that you go ahead and you claim it and then do nothing about it other than to say i claimed it i don't see that that it's anything Well,
3: if you do that someone's just going to settle it they don't care about your cb they'll just take it then why not so then what was the point of having it declared as <laughs> that's
5: basically Even
2: players or
6: ai Well,
5: oh, both well unless they had a mechanic where claiming the territory maybe seeds it with some loyalty pressure from you or something like that so if someone settles in that claimed territory they start with a loyalty handicap an additional loyalty handicap you know on top of what else might be oh. there based on distance from capital or something like that
3: Okay, then you would need to put a bit of a price tag on it. Yeah, I just think this is probably best served as an extra way to encourage early wars and not a whole lot else in practice, because ultimately the game's incentives are pretty clear. You want more cities, so you're going to settle them anyway. And if someone else is trying to beat you to spot you, you are going to end up in conflict with them, most likely anyway, even without a claim mechanic. So this is like an extra incentive thing or to encourage border conflicts over alternative things rather than anything else. But at
5: least in this case, the border conflicts are an affirmative action that the players make, as opposed to just being, like, oh, we have adjacent borders, so we hate each other, even though we're trade partners and stuff like that.
3: Yeah, I guess. Although, I mean, at least it's like there's only one winner in the game. Just pointing that out. So, Well, I, that's also something
5: that I would like to change. So <laughs> <laughs> I would like for there to be cooperative victories in the game as well. I wouldn't so.
3: mind that either. Yeah, I agree.
5: Um, I'm not sure exactly how they should be handled, but I I would like it. And, you know, so having it set up so that you have to explicitly lay claim to a territory in order for there to be tensions, conflict with that territory. I I think I'm okay with that in principle, if that's a replacement for the current our borders spark tension diplomatic modifier. But I, I think of claiming territory more as something that would be more of like a mid game thing, kind of tying into colonization as opposed to like a right at the start of the game thing. So maybe it's something that you would have to research in the civic tree or something like that. That would be like in the medieval or renaissance era. Colonialism or something unlocks the ability to do that. And then you go and you start putting colonies around. And I mean, at that point, it might be too late because most of the map might already be colonized. But if they make the maps bigger or something like that, this might be something that maybe doesn't fit in Civ 6. Maybe it's something that would have to be in Civ 7 where they can design the whole rest of the game around something like this. But I think there's a lot of things that you can do with it that would be interesting, even if it doesn't come into play till later in the game.
1: I was just thinking how you could tie it into the notion of loyalty, where we know right now that we've got a settler unit activated. In some cases, it's, hey, did you guys know that there's a sieve down here? You haven't discovered it yet. Yeah, I see their loyalty pressure. You could claim that, even if it's not within your culture of borders, because we've seen that where you're already applying loyalty to hexes that have not been claimed. That could be the basis for, hey, I'm already applying loyalty pressure here, even if it's just one. Even if it's just it would be negative one from another sieve, you can make the claim, hey... We've settled nearby. This region is also ours. This is our border. And then if someone wanted to challenge you for that, to say, no, I would actually like to settle in that spot, maybe you would be willing to say, okay, based on that deal, the loyalty pressure isn't going to be negative for you, but you're going to have to cough up a fair bit of gold. I could see it tied into that way with loyalty, which would also emerge as the game went on and became a bigger issue later on, where now as civilizations are expanding and they're getting closer to each other, There isn't a lot of territory left to settle, but there's this mash of loyalty, and you're trying to find that spot, which would then extend your borders beyond necessarily where your culture can reach, because as we have seen... Ah, from cities. Mm -mm -mm. I'm sorry, you've got coal in that fourth hex from your city. Oh, I'm so sorry. That's too bad. You can't get that unless you've got, uh, what was it, one of those early great merchants that allows you to bring that resource into your territory and into your culture. And you could use it as that way to also settle that problem and tie it in that way. I like that idea. Also
2: because I thought of it. (laughs) Well, looking at some of the other ones and it's just... I do kind of like the ones about regions could grant cities in them special bonuses. And the example here is a region has a lot of wheat tiles could grant a food bonus to tiles in that region. It's kind of like in real life you have like like in the middle of the U.S. It's a bunch of plains. It's great for producing grain.
5: But isn't that kind of already modeled by the fact that that wheat resource is there?
2: Well, I mean, if we've already got this region to find out and it has like could be a lot of wheat tiles or a lot of rice tiles or something. that those get a bonus for trading in wheat. Something. (laughs)
1: If the region has a lot of wheat tiles and you're working them as well, then as like an adjacency bonus, as an example, okay, like, oh, all of those going to also give you plus one to the city that's all... If the city is working all three of those wheat, then the city also gets plus one food on top of all the food that's already being generated because you're working all of them. They're improved and they're being worked by citizens.
2: Yeah.
1: I don't know if that's a special bonus. That's just more of what they're already giving you, but maybe that gives you culture. Well, we've got a really extensive we farm. There are a lot of people in that city that are employed. That's how they make their livelihood. That's tied to other things that we do, our traditions, our beliefs, our values. That so I could see that, like, okay, plus one culture.
2: Yeah, because you'd have a lot of coal in some place, or you have a lot of niter there or something. Because it does happen sometimes the resources clump up on each other. Or luxuries, too, do that. So, you know, a little something. Because in real life, places are known for being the region of having a bunch of wine.
5: Or what? alternatively, maybe the region that the resource comes from could be a modifier on it. So it'd be like maybe the difference between like Egyptian silk and like Chinese silk, right? So maybe Egypt has Egyptian silk, but they also want Chinese silk. So trading your silk with China gives you an additional bonus than if it was just, they'd be like kind of like different types of silk. So it would almost count as another luxury. Maybe it wouldn't be as strong as having a completely new luxury. The luxury gives like four amenity. So maybe you'd get like two amenity or something like that from getting a different type of silk from a different region of the world. That's like a different quality or whatever, you know, maybe something like that.
2: Yeah. Cause you have that also have it in real life with uh, wines and stuff. Wines from this region, wines from that region.
5: Right. And coffee and
2: uh uh-huh. yeah. So there's, a, there's a little something there that might be useful. Uh let's see. What was the other ones? So, uh, regions can be designated as demilitarized zones or granted their independence. Well, I mean, I see that if you've got one of those stringy continents at the top. It's like all Arctic, and it's one region or, or a couple of regions. Yeah, you, you just have fun with that. You guys have fun with that. No, Nobody wants that. You know, Unless the oil's up there, then everybody wants that, but you know.
1: Then it's suddenly not demilitarized anymore. Why is it that when I read regions could be granted their independence, I just thought of, congratulations, region, on your independence. There are no cities there.
2: <laughs> yeah. Because probably in pre- Yeah, that, that's what I
1: was thinking. <laughs>
2: it's an interesting <laughs> oh, idea, but in practice, that's what's going to happen. We're going to give independence to the crab zones at the two poles or something like that, uh, or an area that's like devoid of stuff that nobody wants to settle in anyway.
5: Maybe if it creates a city state or something like that could work. Yeah. Yeah. If, like you, if you make it independent. Yeah.
2: Uh, let's see. Uh, do? Uh, seven here. Regional borders will be used to create national borders when you settle a city in a region. So national borders would not expand tile by tile like they normally do. would automatically pop to the region borders.
11: Uh... Yeah, because I really trust the stupid tile management in this damn game.
2: Yeah. are going to expand
11: talking... everything you don't care about. Ha-ha!
3: Well, it already does that, to be fair.
11: Well, that's what I mean. Until they fix that, then I don't really want anything else to do with it.
3: <laughs> well, the one yeah. thing that, that they do point
5: out that this would at least help solve is the whole issue where there's those annoying little gaps in between oh, your cities yeah. and AI then comes in and settles in. So if you're claiming the entire region, then you'd be filling in those gaps more quickly or immediately. And that would be something that I think would be helpful. I, there should yeah. be something like tile acquisition should be faster for
1: tiles that are like in the middle of your empire. I was going to say that notion of kind of filling in those gaps where it's, yeah, there's a few hexes that I just can't quite reach with any of my cities based on where I settled. It's not worth settling another city and AI goes, puts a place there. That could tie back into the notion of the expanding your borders, not just being based on culture, but also being based on loyalty pressure. So if you've got those few hexes, for example, and they're surrounded by your cities, particularly as time goes on, it's more and more loyalty pressure, so therefore your regional borders have expanded out either automatically or allow us to, in fact, say okay, we've got some loyalty pressure right there. We don't quite have enough. And I think this is potentially a bit more problematic, but for maybe those few hexes to be able to say, okay, let's buy that with a little bit of culture, for example, or a little bit of gold once you reach a certain threshold or a specific period of time, obviously not infinite. It's like, hey, I'm just going to keep <laughs> buying hexes or whatever in like six, seven, eight tiles out. But I think definitely the loyalty pressure could just be doing that automatically for you as well. So then you wouldn't have to worry about the AI doing that I mean, part of people would now say, well, the AI would be really stupid to do that with the loyalty pressure, because it would just flip over to you. Yeah, but who needs that hassle? Just don't have them do it in the first place. You block them from doing that. You have claimed this territory for yourself. And I still don't want the city there anyway, so even if it flips to me, I don't want it. The buzzing, oh, from the chat, he has said that expansion and placing cities is already pretty engaging. I am not sure this is the place to focus first. And just based on the timestamp, and we were talking about lots of different moving parts, I said, like, which place is that? Are you talking about the regions themselves or something we raised from the topic or even our own idea or as a merchant in our conversation? He's talking about the early game claiming regions. There's already a lot going on while there's still land to claim. Mid-late game has always been where the city gets less engaging. Which maybe then, I think you had mentioned it, Jason, that perhaps that's when we could start claiming regions. You hit a particular era, and it's like, okay, we have a pretty good idea of where the borders are, but not exactly. None of us really want to settle in this spot, but it's kind of understood that this is an extension of that territory because it's not practical for us to settle in there. And I think part of that could begin to be alleviated by the loyalty pressure itself, expanding your borders in addition to cultural generation but also the opportunity for diplomacy to go in and say, why don't we formally recognize this as the border between our civs, and either one of us violating that is going to have negative diplomatic consequences, and or worse.
0: Number two, from episode 309. Whether one should be able to mediate a settlement in Civ 6, or if so, what conditions and how?
10: so zarin made a suggestion that uh what he would like to see is a mechanic come uh, that in a sense is coming back from older games where at present we can drag the entire world into war with us through alliance chains and joint wars, but I think we really ought to have the option to broker peace between two AI civs who are at war. For one thing, it's realistic. Peace is often brokered by a neutral third party rather than directly between the two belligerents. And for another, it would be nice to have an option for resolving conflicts between two civs you're on good terms with. For instance, in my last game, I had alliances with uh, Jedwiga and Philip, but they were at war with each other, which was straining our relationship. It would have been handy to have been able to negotiate an end to their war. And it is... Um, Supremacy King points out in the first post after that. Back in Smack, there was a feature where you could ask another faction to make peace with somebody that they're at war with currently, and correctly, he points out that there were times when that was really, really useful.
1: And of course, uh, for people listening, Smack referring to Sid Meier's Alpha Centauri from the 1990s, probably, possibly before some of our listeners were even born. But...
2: (laughs) (laughs) You know, Dan's getting old when he keeps making that kind of reference all the time.
1: But I'll ask you this uh, question, Mackie. The Feature where you could request that a faction make peace with another faction. You are resident smack expert. Ish. <laughs> when you say request that a faction make peace with another faction, was it just through diplomacy and say we would like you to make peace with another faction, and then they decide whether they're going to go off and do that, and you don't see that? Like you don't have a hand in that, right? Other than asking them to do it.
2: And no, and I, just, it was just one of the things you could ask for, and they'd say yes or no, and you didn't have a way like we do now in the, the later Civs diplomacy where you could sweeten it with a little bit of something. It was just a request and it depended on the relationship you had with them. So Even if then, they liked you enough, they might, but most of the time, eh,
5: even then, it sounds like you're still just going to one party or the other and basically Yeah, them into- yeah you're and not I think properly
2: what, mediating.
5: I think what the poster's asking for and what I would like to see is some sort of actual multilateral negotiations where you're actually conferencing with both of the AIs and trying to find some deal that allows both of them to accept peace rather than just bribing one and the other just having to accept it.
3: Well... All- the way it works in Civ 4 and it makes sense, is the one that was losing, if you tried to bribe that one to peace, it would say, we'd love to, but you have to contact them. Yes. So yeah. you had to bribe the nation that was winning to make peace. In order to make peace. How and so was... the nation that was losing would certainly already want peace because the that AI evaluated that it was losing. Well, unless they had like a bunch of
5: units that were just about to come out and do a counterattack. But curious it's been so long since I played Civ 4 and I didn't really play ever play Civ4 at a high level. So uh how good was 4 at determining who was winning and who was losing the war? Was it just a matter of whether or not cities had been captured or
3: it's about as quality as now, in other words, not very I don't want to say it doesn't change because the nature of the games has changed a lot from Civ 4 to Civ 6, but realistically, the way the AI evaluates it is pretty similar across these games and that it just looks at relative power, doesn't care anything for a strategic situation, except for maybe it'll acknowledge the fact that there's units near cities, which was done even back then. You have points assigned for, like, unit kills and points assigned for cities, points assigned for nukes, that kind of thing. So... And there was some evaluation there, but it put a lot of weight on relative power, even if the quality of the units was pretty disparate. So you could have some situations where it would wrongly evaluate. But you're going to get that even in a conferencing scenario because the AI will think it's either better or worse than it really is in position. And that would still impact how it would behave in a mediation setting as well. I think this would be hard on the AI, too, to make a conference thing, whereas having the winner accept to stop the war because you're giving it something to stop the war is a lot more straightforward from an evaluation perspective.
10: When it's realistic, I mean, that's ultimately what you're going to have to do. If there's a clear winner and a clear loser, then in order to get the clear winner to cease pursuing the war, you're going to have to give them something that's worth more to them than whatever they think they're going to get out of pursuing the war to uh, its final conclusion. Um, You know, and I know it was always fairly easy to get the AI to go ahead and put down arms if things were relatively level and if there hadn't been anything happening in the war for a while, like 20 turns or so, and it kind of ground to a halt anyway, then they're just like, okay, yeah, whatever, this war's. not going anywhere. But yeah, I don't think that you necessarily, it looks good from a realism standpoint to bring things to the table, but if you actually understand how international conflict and deals and things like that work, you don't need, in my opinion, anything much more complicated than what we've used in passives to pick up what would end up on the conference table anyway.
1: (laughs) Of course, easier said than done, I know. Nice that this mechanic wasn't just, well... There's the mismediation mechanic, and the human is always using it between the AI. If you were fighting an AI to have another AI come to you and say, hey, we want to mediate your dispute, you need to end the war, that would also be beneficial. Plus, the question would be with the AI and even for yourself, thinking about how much am I willing to give one side or both sides in order to end their conflict because it's going to be advantageous to me and i think the just going to the person who's winning like in civ 4 and giving them an incentive yeah that's not mediation that's well, that's bribing or placating or something That's not it's not mediating because you're not bringing all the parties in it's just hey i got this person to agree to stop fighting with you maybe if we can get that into the game and that's working well then we could talk about full blown mediating a settlement which would be nice stepping stones
5: Well, another thing, too, would be the idea of having multiple neutral parties involved. So you could have a situation where, I don't know, say Rome and Egypt are at war with each other and then I get together with America and England and we're all like, hey, we will all give you X or Y in exchange for ending the war. So the burden of mediating that war and basically paying off or bribing the guy who's winning is not completely burdened onto one particular sieve
1: as you're describing this i've got the sense of trying to incorporate into the game the concept of congress of vienna where we get a whole bunch of nations within a set territory trying to come to an agreement on peace with anybody and everybody at the same time which sounds fantastic i would love that i saw like the party pooper here This needs to be i don't know what implementation of that though yeah it'd be tough yeah I mean,
5: I would love to see some sort of robust multilateral diplomacy system in the game in general, not just for mediating wars, but also for doing like triangular trade deals and stuff like that. But UI would be difficult, like programming the AI to be able to do all that stuff would be difficult. Programming the AI to recognize whether or not a deal is a good deal would be difficult. Yeah, it definitely would not be easy. It'd be nice, but it wouldn't be easy.
3: The apostolic palace forced peace between near nations. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Ah, uh, the resolution.
2: <sighs>
1: ah, <laughs> uh, I was feeling like this is becoming more about Civilization Seven, <laughs> as opposed to at at some point in Civilization Six. At this point, <laughs> yeah, or probably more like Civilization Eight or Nine. Wait, is that because there's too much pressure to make Civilization Seven, so they just call it Civilization Eight, or do you mean it's going to take you know? Are oh, they going to do the Windows trick? <laughs> it worked for Microsoft, and they're still around. Therefore, yeah. It's just... <laughs> <laughs> Better
5: but I, I'd also like to see some sort of mediation mechanic that you could do between civilizations and city-states. Right now, there's virtually nothing you can do to stop the just rampant AI aggression against city-states. And part of that's all the bonuses that the AIs get makes it uh, obvious optimal play to just go eat all the city-states you can find. But yeah, it would be nice to be able to go to the civ in the city-state and be like, hey, guys, you gotta end this.
3: At least for ones where you're suzerain. Yeah, right. Exactly. Uh, you should at least be able to take over a defensive war to defend your frickin city state yeah. when you're suzerain. That's the suzerain means you're the oral art. Come on.
5: Right. And it shouldn't just be a matter of I've got to send my military over there to smack down the aggressor. But I should also be able to go into diplomacy and be like, hey, look, we know we can't take you militarily, but we'll give you 20 gold per turn or whatever if you
3: just let them live. Ultimatum, give them an ultimatum.
5: Yeah, and then again, going back to what I said earlier, maybe even getting other city states to be like, Yeah, well, we're going to fight you too if you don't stop being aggressive against this guy because we know we're next. Oh, that was always cute when that happened in Civ 5. I was just about that. to say, yeah. yeah. Well, the city states would need more teeth in order for that to work, but. It was cute.
1: Yeah. It was cute. I mean, at least in Civ 5, they growled.
6: Yeah.
5: Right. Heck, I would actually like to be able to see city states actually like be aggressive against each other. Because in you know Civ Five, you always had them giving you those quests to attack the other city state, and I was like, why
1: don't you just <laughs> do it yourself? Sometimes they did. Jason, 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 Jason. City states like to be wooed. I know they do.
2: He <laughs> still to like to woo them fan of a pointy army, though.
1: <laughs> uh, Boris uh, good enough in the thread. I'm talking about city states as his third example, party number three tells all other civs that X continent or X collection of city-states is off-limits. I think the tie in what you were saying, Phil, it's like, these city-states are off-limits because I'm their suzerain, not because they're off-limits because I would like to be their suzerain at some point. No, you, you've you got a defined, formally recognized investment in them. There was also talk about party number three acts diplomatically to bring parties number one and two to an agreement that stops their war. Parties one and two could be civs or city-states, except that now, when you end war with Civilization X, the war automatically ends with the city-states. Peace is automatically made. It's not that, oh, okay, I gotta go make peace separately with the city-states now, or just continue on fighting them. Yeah, no more separate peace and no more immediate separate peace. No more of that. Yeah. In the chat, Monthar, a broker peace button could just bring up the trade screens for both of the Warring Civs. The broker could then pick the things each Warring Civ trades with each other until they both agree. I feel like if that could work i just got this vision of how it can be in diplomacy right now with the ai when you're trying to trade with them say in excess of their luxury and like myself i'm sitting there and i'm like will you agree to one more gold yes will you agree to one more gold yes will you agree to one more gold no okay back down and i know i'm i'm <laughs> i'm, I'm microwing that big time and i know sometimes in the cooperative games uh it's like dan what are you doing no, yeah, this aspect of UI
3: is much more degenerate than the Eureka <laughs> system. They really need to fix this, <laughs> especially before they start introducing things that would complicate it further.
10: <laughs> yeah, the big problem with uh, robust AI systems, if you go back and think about some of the older games in the 4X genre, like say all the way back to like Master of 2 and Alpha Centauri, is when you give the player a whole bunch of levers that they can pull and the AI is an idiot, then what you're really doing is you're just giving the player more opportunities to exploit the fact that the AI doesn't really understand what the heck's going on in the game mechanics. And that's how we ended up you know, in a world where in Civ IV, Soren Johnson gated a whole bunch of the uh, trade options behind technologies so that the player couldn't just exploit all those tricks from day one.
1: Buzzing suggests a notion of diplomatic capital. If A respects me and B fears my economic sanctions, I could spend X influence to and put Y on the table as threats and rewards if they make a deal. Hey, that sounds familiar. <laughs> <laughs> I've said it before.
5: Beyond Earth, I think, had some good ideas. They were just not in a very good overall game. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff in Beyond Earth I wouldn't mind seeing Braxis try again.
3: We're just brought over, yeah.
5: The diplomatic capital and the fear and respect modifiers is is one of those things that i think should probably be re-examined at some point
3: even war score would have been fine if it had the ability to compel peace and let you switch out what you're asking for
5: yeah i I really think that the war score also needs to have an actual stated objective by the aggressor in order to really work but
3: yeah and you need need need, need need to be able to compel peace otherwise it's junk yeah right but if there's in, not in, with more than taking all of their cities <laughs> right but
5: if, if there's not a situation where you state a specific objective and you've either completed that objective or failed to complete that objective i really don't see a war score system really like working the way that it should work
3: yeah that's true
1: <laughs> canis alba sent us in the chat also past guest it looks like monthar dan would rather bully the city states
5: well, yep. <laughs> give me all your cash or you die. Ah, I missed that too.
1: And then the buzzing's like, then bully them. Put a thread on the table and give them X amount of time to do what you want. I feel like, and Civ if we can kind of do that to a certain point. I can go and demand not of a city state, but a sieve and say, uh, yeah, just give me all this gold per turn. I demand it. Nope. I feel like it would be nice to be able to combine that into one. It's like. Give me all your gold right now, or it's immediate war. Or we could expand that to give me all of your gold, or economic sanctions, or I'm going to close my borders with you, or, or something.
5: Well, an idea that I've like flirted with in the past, we've already got these mechanics where like the city-states and stuff can give the player like little quests to do. Maybe we should have mechanics where the human player and the other civs can actually give little quest sort of things to each other in order to gain favor and diplomatic relations.
1: Oh, gosh, I thought it was going to be something like we should have a system, whereas the major civs, uh, we can all meet together and decide who's going to be the suzerain of what city-state, you know, just pretend to be Europe dividing up Africa or something.
3: I grant you favor and protection. I mean, I could maybe see something like that working if you've got multiple
5: civs that are constantly going back and forth between being the suzerain of a particular
1: city-state. Just settle it once and for all. It's better in Civ 6 than in Civ 5 because at least it's not a continual gold sink for the city state favor. Right. Number one. Number two, now especially with the governors, where it's just, guess what? I've got a governor here and I reach its highest level of promotion and now that acts double the number. That so far has whatever the city state was trying to do, they just kind of go, blah. The, their major Civ just go, blah, fine, whatever. Um, it, <laughs> <laughs> At least in Civ 6, when it comes to the city-states, the, the civs aren't going to the extreme of absolutely must-have this particular city-state that I'm in control of. At least it's not to their detriment anymore.
5: Yeah, although the fact that envoys are used for literally nothing other than sending to city-states means that you do end up with those situations every now and then where when there are two civs that really want one particular city-state, they just keep going back and forth for a really long time before one of them finally like gives up on it. Because there's nothing else for you to do with the envoy other than to send it to a city-state. So it's like, well, I'm going to try to be suzerain. Otherwise, it's not really doing much for me. Uh, it would be interesting your if... your
3: envoy load on somebody else's city-state to flip it by surprise. Yeah.
5: yeah, you could do that as well. You can save them up. But I'm, I'm wondering if there could maybe be room in the game for envoys actually having diplomatic functions with the other civs instead of just with the city-states.
3: What do you make it do, though? Like, I don't
5: that
2: know. Would work in... That
3: would work even if the players a human. <laughs>
2: Yeah, because we have the spies right now to increase the diplomatic visibility level, unless you take that function away from the spies and give it to the envoys.
5: Well, I was thinking more along the lines of, again, going, referring back to the diplomatic capital idea from Beyond Earth, maybe somehow combining that function with the envoys. But yeah, I'm just kind of like thinking out loud right now, so don't pay too much heed.
3: And now you can like start forcing trades and stuff, even if the player doesn't agree to it. You just make a trade resources or something that would be interesting though I mean, maybe
5: I, yeah th- if that you're that be... diplomatically influential on the world stage then maybe you do have the power and authority to do that i
3: mean it'd be a little silly to force like a war declaration but if you took trade out of even the player's hands when it comes to both like excess resources and stuff that could be interesting because then you would see it even in competitive environments you would just have to make sure it's not broken
11: from a balance perspective Number five from episode three hundred and six. Mega Bears fan. Yay!
1: Dan is back to keep the sheep in line.
2: What do you call a sheep? <laughs>
1: <laughs> he may have just been referring to himself, Mackie.
2: The sheep is plural.
1: Wait a minute. How, a sheep is,
2: <laughs> <laughs> why are you assuming sheep is plural? Well, if he was going to refer to himself, this sheep in line, you see.
3: Oh, uh, did he use something that made it necessarily plural? I just said the sheep. Yeah.
5: Yeah, that's, that's up to interpretation.
3: That, that could obviously be singular or plural, but Mackie assumed plural. Uh, I wonder why. It's interesting. <laughs> Doesn't protest too <laughs> much sheep. or something,
4: perhaps. And that the plural was sheeple. Yes.
3: <laughs> <Yeah>.
11: <laughs>
4: this is
3: a Rorschach
1: test.
11: Number four from episode three hundred and
1: twenty-three. And Mega Bears fan. Only hit this news button once this morning. So proud of myself. Okay, so Mackie and Jason need the same thing, and Phil can (laughs) get it for you whether he's running forward or backwards. We'll just send him on his way, and then I guess I'll just be doing the show myself for a little bit. Okay, so I'm not going to sing all of the topics. Uh, No, I'm not going to do that. (laughs) You You had your chance last time. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> I just sung the segues between the topics I didn't actually sing the whole topics and as we commented because Mackie wasn't here it just wasn't as fun <sighs>
2: <laughs> So this is what I get for going to a race, I see
1: That's right, we saved it for you We saved the singing for you and probably the only thing worse than our actually singing is your us thinking about singing because, well, that's just your own fault that you're thinking about it Alrighty then <laughs> yeah i was just kind of kind of waiting for an
3: appropriate time to you uh, to on but it would be pretty non-sequitur getting the conversation at the
1: moment it's all right
3: <laughs> non-sequitur is what we do best
1: i mean the thread title includes the phrase help me and i think Mackie is thinking that right now so there's our segue mm-hmm. all right oh that's the best we can do forward we go at least as quickly
11: as backwards number three from episode 319
1: you get to hear my side of the conversation here, at least, if there is a conversation. If Mac answers.
6: Yes, dear, just down and get headphones.
1: Okay, see you shortly. Bye. I think she said, yes, dear. Yes.
8: <laughs> uh, it sounded like, stop hassling me, I'm coming. <laughs> yeah,
5: I
1: don't think that was an endearing deer. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Yes, he got yes-deared.
1: That might be the bumper for the show. Fantastic. <laughs> it's
2: like, literally sit down, have one hand on headphones. Suddenly, phone goes off. It's like, Dan, I'm coming. Come on.
11: Number two from episode 309.
1: Oh, we just lose Phil? Um, <laughs> yes, Kazunta. Yes, yes, we did lose Phil. Oh,
2: damn it. <laughs> I forgot. I don't have Skype set up to uh, mute on that button.
1: Oh. <laughs> Uh, I thought Mackie was upset that Phil dropped from the call, but apparently it doesn't phase her at all. Well, now we know.
2: It's the internet. How many times on this podcast we play technical difficulties? I mean, come on.
1: It's true. Go live button, Phil drops.
2: <laughs> oh, I was going to say, you pushed it right as I sneezed. That would even be funnier.
1: He dropped before you sneezed, although it Phil's internet connection was anticipating the sneeze from Texas.
2: <laughs> yeah, I'm going to blow out the Florida internet by sneezing, yeah.
0: number one from episode 310 evaluating the front loading of tasks civilization 6 imposes on the player
3: we have a thread about front loading specifically from a clue without is there too much available to you in the game really in terms of making choices is the way i interpreted this thread I would say no, in that I would prefer there to be more meaningful choices near the end of the game or to end the game sooner than to reduce the number of meaningful choices available in the early game. There are a lot of things to consider, but I don't feel that it's overwhelming. And uh, most of the great gameplay has been in historical games as well. And by historical, I mean previous entries in the series. So Yeah, I mean, most people play the early game and stop playing after that, right? So we do want to make the end game more like the early game. We don't want to make the early game more like the end game. So there are not too many choices in the early game, in my opinion.
1: Yeah, to that end, in the thread Archon Wing had said, the reason why late game sucks is because early game is actually well designed. It's actually the part that's doing its job then. (laughs) Yeah. And as Play Shogi said, you can't get them all with regards to choices in the early game. And as long as the choices are meaningful, as you already mentioned, Phil, then that's exactly what we want. So people are picking up on the pacing of the game is different as you progress. And the thread gets into, these are the number of technologies, these are the number of civics per era, these are the number of choices per era, down to two decimal places in some of these mathematical calculations. And I get where we're trying to go for here, but when I start looking at numbers of technologies... I just start thinking about how the game determines who is ahead in science by counting and prioritizing the number of technologies you've researched as opposed to your beakers per turn, which is misleading, and in this case it's misleading. It's not always about the number of choices, but you want to have there to be sufficient number of choices that you can't do them all. You don't want to be able to have it so that you're always doing the same one or the same ones in comparable order that you're more often than not always going for these things first or these things last, regardless of what else is going on in the game, and we need to make it so that in the later game, there are choices to be made and the choices matter. Because, as Arkham also says, the reason the later game feels boring is that it takes too long to develop cities relative to the time left, and that's really a lot of what you would be doing in terms of making choices in the later game other than finishing up whatever victory conditions you're trying to go for. Oh, I'm building slash buying a military to go for a domination victory. Oh, I need more space ports in order to go for the science victory. If there were those comparable choices in the early game, the explore, the expand, the exploit, then that would make also help the game not feel like, so how many more end turns do we have to go through until we get to a resolution? Because this is boring. When you say it that way, in
3: terms of city development, it sounds like he means like in-game turns, which is actually a, a true, and that's been an issue in Civ pretty much forever. There's always a cutoff point in a game, depending on the mechanics, where settling or capturing an additional city is not going to speed up your victory condition unless by capturing a city you're pushing towards domination or conquest. So like you found a city, you need to grow it, you need to get the infrastructure set up. It costs you maintenance, it costs you amenities, whatever it is, depending on the version of the Civ game. At some point, it's not actually going to speed up your victory condition. It will slow it down. That's always an issue. Well, I guess you could also make an
5: argument for capturing cities in order to
3: take spaceports for the science victory. Yeah, that's true. Although, again, those are expensive to build. So someone (laughs) else build them for you. <laughs> Again, though, it's very situational whether that's actually going to speed up your space win. And certainly, at least in the current state of single player, it's very unlikely <laughs> that yeah. well, and if you, you will be pushing to- for a space win and the AI is actually going to have that kind of stuff ahead of you to the point where building a military and going and taking it is going to speed up your space win. You might do it to prevent a loss if you're behind. In which case, yeah, that speeds up your win because you're not losing. Instead, you're winning. But (laughs) I have seen
5: quite a few games where the AIs have started getting spaceports out pretty early. And then I check the victory screen and it doesn't look like they're actually building any of the dang parts. So that's true. I don't usually win before like
3: turn 300. So on deity.
5: (sighs) Yeah. So sometimes it's like, okay, well, I could spend 30 turns or whatever building
3: a spaceport or I could just invade this guy and take three of his. Although at that point, are the number of turns you're ending actually going to be faster to complete your science win? Or are you just going to go take the rest of the capitals? Yeah, if you're powerful enough to be taking those cities anyway, you're probably powerful enough to just finish it. Especially because your enemies with Space Force will have endgame tax. If you're beating that,
9: you're probably beating everything else, too. Right. The biggest concern is either amount of time that you have to spend in real life time going to get there. Because the other opposing armies could have a lot of units that you have to kill your way through. Or just click and turn, and turn, and turn is a lot faster than kill these guys and turn, kill these guys and turn. That's true, but
3: you're having to take a spaceport anyway. And the number of turns you're cycling for a space one is likely fewer in the turn count sense. So your lost time combination versus space is actually not that easy to compute. It depends on the player speed. It depends on the quality <laughs> of their computer. To how big Depends the map, on map is. size. yeah yeah certainly domination by eliminating like seven opponents is going to be significantly faster than domination eliminating 24 opponents whereas the space it's still slower because of the turn rollover times but it's going to be slower by last and again that's machine dependent <laughs> yeah the number of space ports you need the number of spaceship parts you need to build does not scale
1: based on game length or size yeah i mean the buzzing in the chat says i don't understand how it takes too long to develop cities in the late game question mark that's that all comes back to the district construction, the district scaling issues that we currently have in the game. Yeah, I might go ahead and found a later city because mm, I need this particular strategic resource, but that's all I'm doing. It is just a glorified colony for that resource. I, I need something to build. Okay, go ahead and construct a commercial hub. I don't need a campus anymore, but gold is fantastic.
3: Now, now, there's always chop over flow too, Dan, if you're getting like... Hundreds of a percent modifier on chats, and there's a lot of forests on this one city site.
1: Oh, yes. There's definitely (laughs) situations where you can go ahead and do that, and that would, in fact, make the case stronger for actually settling something there, whether there's a strategic resource there or not. It does suck, and we talked about this in the last few episodes, about all the empty space that we seem to have in Civilization VI and I'm not suggesting that we go back to, oh, there's a space here. I can go and build a city here, even though it's crap. <laughs> it's not as bad in Civ Six for that, which is good. I don't want to return to that. But now the pendulum is one that we've got all of this empty space. And to try to address this in part, a clue without who started the thread, wants to know if maybe talking about pushing districts back to later eras or pushing back some of the buildings that you can construct into later eras, except that with the buildings... You have to, for instance, in a campus, in order to construct a university, you have to have a library. Or you get lucky and you get that great scientist that give you both at the same time. So to me, that's already delayed. And plus, you have to get to the technology in order to be able to construct that too. So I don't think that's going to address the issue that's here. I, I think the front-loading issue is mostly a learning curve for newer players where there are so many options to try to figure out, how do I decide what it is that I do? But anybody who thinks they're going to start playing Civilization and have five to ten minutes and be ready to go. It's an investment in the time, and there's different difficulty levels, and there's lots of single-player games you can start and stop again. Even veteran Civ players do that now <laughs> now and again. I think what we're getting at, and is you kind of set up front there, Phil, it's not that it's front-loading too much. It's that the later game doesn't do enough of that. It doesn't replicate that in a meaningful way, regardless of how many choices there currently are. It's not that the choices aren't necessarily meaningful, it's just more meaningful to, in fact, not do that. Because, gee, even if you're not going for a formal victory condition, whatever it is that you're trying to do, you're probably going to accomplish it more quickly by dealing with the cities that you already constructed, because they've had the time to mature, and you can just go ahead and do that.
3: One thing for the uh, late-game borders, though, that could be relatively simply implemented and probably wouldn't affect gameplay much is if you increase the natural city culture expansion rate a lot with like some end game tech or like mid to late game tech. That way, the cities you've already found that are very likely to fill out things outside their third ring
9: before the end of the game. So you have those pretty map borders going on. The thing I actually most want, if we're going to be talking about the borders, is changing how cities interact with tiles Oh, so early on, if you start out, cities can only work the first two rings. Then at some point mid game, you go to three rings, then four rings towards the end game. Because right now, the problem that I'm having with this is that early on, it feels like everything is taken up by like districts or useful tiles. And then later on, it feels like everything is just completely full. And I have all this empty space. I just can't build any cities on. So I just have this giant mega city blob And then empty space and then another giant mega city blob. And it ends up making the space feel like it's kind of underused at the same time that it's just full. I'm not sure if it's intentional or not, but empty space is designed into Civ Six
3: compared to earlier iterations in the series. Well, and Civ Five is the same way. But like if you look at Civ Four versus Civ Six or Civ uh, Five, Civ4 versus the later Civs than that. There is a major cutoff there in terms of whether tiles are intentionally workable, because in Civ 5 you're gated on number of cities because of the happiness mechanic to some degree. And in Civ 6 it's amenities, right? You you only get so many amenities. And so no matter what, you can't put bunches of cities next to each other, like the three tile distance, grow all of them to like pop 15, 20. Just it doesn't make sense compared to working better tiles. Whereas in Civ 4, this was legitimately useful. And because happiness was only a per-city limitation, it was actually feasible to go near ICS and work nearly all of your tiles and benefit from by design. Whereas in Civ 5 and 6, that's just not true. It's not useful to do this. And that's okay in principle.
9: Yeah, I actually think ICS works a little bit better in 6 and 5 simply because of the fact that a lot of the uh, mid-tier buildings will apply their bonuses to every city within six
6: tiles.
9: (laughs) Yeah, implementing something like that while
3: allowing for more tiles to be worked in a compressed fashion like that would require a little bit of an adjustment.
9: Yeah. The good part about uh, doing the ICS spam, though, is that you get all the district bonuses because all the cities will plop like an industrial zone next to another two industrial zones and get all the bonuses for adjacency that way. Yeah.
1: In the thread, Leoran kind of interjects something about the front-loading that really doesn't take off in the thread. It's about governors. Governors should come because your empire's growing too unwieldy to keep you together on your own, which should happen in the medieval or renaissance era, not ancient era. Refine the loyalty system to have loyalty depend on distance to capital in addition to nearby cities, then let governors radiate loyalty in the same way but weaker. So if I were to settle the East Coast from Europe on the Earth map, if I'd put a governor in New York, then, say, Washington would also gain some loyalty from that.
3: Hmm. That's a pretty tough to skill in the
9: Lily game. I'm yeah. just thinking about that numerically and such. But Having a governor cap total it makes that kind of tough if we want to go and start going uh, wide much more often.
3: Sort of, but you don't have four to six fronts, typically. Uh, You usually only have, like, one to three, right? No matter how low your loyalty pressure is, if there's literally nobody else applying pressure to the city anymore, you probably don't need to worry about it.
1: Part of the issue with the loyalty becomes... I mean, yes, settling cities closer to other civilizations, which is good that the loyalty kind of forces a bit of a buffer, because, oh gosh, that city's only been there 10 or 15 turns, but if I settle there, that particular hex is already minus 6. How am I going to be able to combat that, particularly in the early game, let alone the additional loyalty pressure that it's going to apply? Because as soon as I found that thing, before I construct anything in there, put any kind of units in there, adopt any kind of policy card, it's already going to be losing loyalty... But at the same time, when you start taking cities, you have a completely viable city. Yet you realize uh, loyalty is falling, and you go, and you have to look at the city details. I always do not immediately talk about raising or keeping the city. You go and look at the loyalty details, and it will tell, tell you by how much it is falling. And even in the mid-game, it can be at 15+. And you think, okay, I can combat that. Oh, and an online speed, you've got like a handful of turns. So you end up raising cities, and you try to think, you know, maybe some strategy with regards to, okay, I'm going to capture this city first, because it's not as good as the second city. Because if I capture this first city and I raise it, then if I go to capture the second city, then there won't be as much negative loyalty pressure on there. But that also ends up leaving more space on the map. And you raise perfectly good cities, when that is not something we would have done previously in Civilization, let alone not something you would have seen in reality. Not that I'm often one for a reality argument. But in terms of gameplay, it's like, yep, raise Raise, raise, more empty space. It's actually making the problem worse.
11: Yeah, that's very true. And number one from episode three hundred and ten.
3: You would have to make it so that like you only absorb the good stuff and you choose it in real time or it would be like impossible with our cognitive ability but that would be the way to go because that's how you would avoid getting fat. I'm sorry, what's this podcast about again? <laughs> <laughs> Apparently physics.
1: No, I know the answer to the question. It is rib-flavored ice cream. That is the topic
6: <laughs> oh,
1: of this no, show. Don't. And that is the theme. Thank you, Jason. you, <laughs> Bears fan, to be clear. I will deliver unto you this special sauce.
2: <laughs> have one or the other do not mix them oh my god
3: it's put a little bit of that high school
1: cheese <laughs> sauce crap on it too yeah oh. <laughs> just put it in a blender it'd be fine
2: call it today
1: in North America, 301-637-7659.
3: In Europe, 44 288 7659
2: The only thing worse than being talked about is not being talked about.
11: Log on to the series' official website at
2: thepolycast.net.
1: Thank you for tuning in to Polycast Evergreen Season 12. I'm Daniel Dan Quick.
0: I'm Canis Albanus. Resistance was futile.
11: Civilization 1 Clips, Copyright Microprose.
2: Civilization 4 Sound Clips, Copyright Take 2 Interactive. Copyright Civilized Communication at civcom.net.